0: we Hello and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We hope you had a good week. We hope you had uh, an excellent Easter Monday and we are more than happy to have you here with us today. If you are not catching this live but you're watching this on a replay on YouTube then uh, we likewise are happy to uh, have you here and extend to you our Warmest greetings. If this is your first visit to Atlas Information, then welcome. Um, as always, we like to invite all of our guests to uh, be able to come on and participate in some capacity. You can leave a comment or, or indeed use the link here in the uh, comments and on screen and you can come and join and ask a question directly or make a comment or share something that's relevant to the discussion at hand. And that discussion today is going to revolve around uh, technology, specifically AI and more aptly we should say it's going to revolve around mechanicity. That's the more correct term for the subject that we're going to exploring today because artificial intelligence while in one sense it is a technology that is being developed at breakneck speeds, in reality that technology is simply an expression of an underlying mechanicity. And that mechanicity is far older than what even the computer scientists and those developing AI technology would care to believe. And it is the relationship between the underlying mechanicity and that which we call technology, that which we interface with in the external world, whether it be computers or even machinery for that matter, the and other digital devices that we have, smartphones, and what have you. AI is simply the latest manifestation or expression of the underlying mechanicity which again has been with this humanity for a very very long time speaking of being with uh, humanity Benjamin is with us today and Benjamin says hello hello Benjamin how are you we're glad that you can join us the uh, topic emerged as you know we are working on a, our book and that barring any unforeseen technological snafus or other uh, impediments uh, we are making a good headway we have over 250 pages written it's really just a matter of going through and editing and and um, updating what needs to be updated and so on uh, we hope to be able to have the book ready by the beginning of June and available at the beginning of June. So we're sort of working at breakneck speeds right now. And one of the aspects of the book is, of course, what we call the rise of artificial intelligence, the rise of AI. This is a misnomer. This is a misunderstanding. AI does not rise. AI does not awaken. AI, externally, as we create it, the technology out there will never be conscious. It will never be sentient. The question is, from a Contemporary philosophical standpoint and from a practical standpoint. What people are wondering is. Will it. Will it develop. A a kind of sentience. What they call artificial general intelligence. Will it become self aware in other words. That is one definition of consciousness of being conscient conscious or being sentient that which becomes self-aware. And a lot of people are worried about the consequences, what might happen should some AI entity achieve that state of being. But an AI will never be truly conscious. Because for that, it must have access to consciousness. The people who are worried about AI, the rise of AI and the, the emergence of co- a conscious AI out of a programming that evolves and develops itself and suddenly becomes sentient in the same sense that we, in the same sense that we are. Those people subscribe to the erroneous belief that consciousness originates in the brain. consciousness is a product of the brain. Now the brain is mechanical. The brain is an electrochemical computer. How do we know this? Well, AI is based on the synapses in the brain. In the Bible, it says, God created man in his own image. It follows that man created computers in our own image. The first generation of those computers, those computational devices, were completely binary. That is based on ones and zeros. And the one and zero, on or off state, which defines the binary language, is the most mechanical, technological expression of the dialectic, of duality. This or that. You or me. Us or them black or white, up or down, yes or no, we don't have to list them all. You know what we're talking about here, duality. The binary language of computers is simply a expression of that in ones and zeros. And on that basis, the computers that we have created to date, that is how they think. That is how they process information, reduced to ones and zeros and collections of ones and zeros, that based on a fundamental duality of whether a switch is in the on position or the off position, and what in in computer terminology these are referred to as bits right? You may have heard the terms bits and bytes, and there's eight bits in a byte, and so on and so forth, but then there's also 16-bit, and 32-bit, and 64-bit, so different levels of computing, the number of bits that constitute a byte, and so on and so forth. We don't want to get into, mired into some sort of technical conversation today. Our purpose is to simply reveal the origins of this so-called technology, this high technology. Well, again, that high technology of computers was ones and zeros. And the evolution of the computer into so-called artificial intelligence is likewise an expression, a completely digital expression of a mechanical entity, which is likewise based on duality. and That is the uh, neural network of synapses of the brain, which likewise are based upon a foundation of duality. The same duality that gave birth to the binary language of ones and zeros. We look at the world, we perceive the world with our animal, rational mind in binary terms. Everything is a duality. This or that. Me or not me. Right? I and not I. That is a fundamental duality with which we all experience the world on an animalistic, primal, rational level. This is the basic foundational animal expression of sentience. An entity that is able to to differentiate between itself and everything else. So in any given moment, it can differentiate between itself and something else, particularly in practical terms, itself and a predator, or itself and prey, or itself and a potential mate, you see? A very, very basic, basic, basic level. This duality, as it relates to sentience, as as it relates to being on this level of reality, in three-dimensional reality, duality is baked into the system. Everything, bacteria, perceive reality this way. Even a bacterium, even an amoeba, even a sperm, on some level, is driven towards an egg. And a sperm, on some level, differentiates between itself and the other hundred billion sperms around it, all racing towards that one egg. This is hardwired and baked into reality, the this notion of duality, and we all know this intuitively, intrinsically, and instinctively. We all know this. Us and them, me versus the others, and so on and so forth. This is the fundamental foundation of all mechanicity that we identify as technology. But it is not enough to stop there in our analysis. Because that alone doesn't say much. It is an observation. It is a correspondence, a correlation but there's no causation yet but we know that in nature there's a great there's a great deal of cause and effect taking place it is the great law being expressed on the level of mechanical nature things happen creatures are motivated animals, plants, fungi, and so on. They are motivated to to act. Predators are motivated to hunt prey. To wherein lies the motivation. Then we get to the metaphysical level of mechanicity and we arrive at what we generally refer to as egos. These are the primal, underlying, mechanical programs. If the operating system is duality, then the programs running on that operating system function within the framework of that duality, of that mechanicity. In the same way that an operating system, by operating system we mean the very hardware and the way the hardware is encoded to work with ones and zeros, software is layered on top of that. So the fundamental operating system of computer chips is ones and zeros and then onto those chips software can be written and of course in tip in modern parlance we think of operating systems as also a kind of software that's another layer of software between the hardware and ourselves and then the programs run on that but there is actually a binary software or sorry binary language a binary foundation that's working in the chipsets themselves. It's called machine language. And that is the system on which all software, including that which we call operating operating systems, function within that framework. And that's a binary framework. In, in the same way, we have egos in nature. Egos of fear, of lust, of anger, of pride, of greed, of of gluttony, of laziness. Now, we've given you the, uh, what we might say, the anthropomorphized or human perception of these egos. Fear and lust, as we've described in the past, are the foundational, primal programs that all living things function on. And it is, both of them relate to the primal instinct to survive. Fear functions as survival of the individual. That's its primary concern. Whereas lust concerns itself with the survival of the individual's bloodline. The survival or continuation or continuity of an individual's DNA. An extension of the individual through its offspring. So, by extension then, lust concerns itself primarily with survival of the species. But there are levels and levels to this. It's immediately, perhaps, survival of one's immediate offspring. And survival of the pack or the pride or the flock, whatever group that individual identifies with, and whatever group that individual feels attached to and obligated to assist in its survival. But then as we go escalate up the line, we end up with survival of the species because that's procreation. A species will not survive if it is if individuals within it are unable to procreate. And lust is the program which controls that activity. In the same way that fear is the program which gives the impetus that motivates individuals to defend themselves or to run away. So we have the fight or flight instinct there's actually fight flight freeze or fawn these are the four possible outcomes when uh, an organism is threatened and the fear program is triggered fight or flight we know very well Uh, mother bear who feels that her young are under threat will 99 times out of 100 fight. And she will fight to the death most often in order to protect her cubs. The cubs themselves, when threatened, they have a 99% chance of flight, of running away from whatever the threat is. other animals, so for example, well, many animals, small rodents or or deer, for example, very often when they are startled, caught off guard, suddenly discover that they're being watched or that there's a potential threat, many of them, their first immediate instinct is to freeze. And we all know that expression, a deer in headlights. And the fourth and final expression of fear is what's known as fawn, and fawn relates to an organism which recognizes that the best survival self-preservation strategy in a given instance of threat is to surrender to the threatening individual. So, for example, you might find this in situations of social order among various animals. So, for example, chimpanzee troops or wolf packs or prides of lions, where a dominant member of the troop explicitly threatens another member of that troop and they might even they might even fight at first but when the weaker of the two senses that they are defeated that they've been bested rather than allow themselves rather than fighting to the death or allowing themselves to be permanently injured in some way they switch to fawn and they show their respect they humble themselves and they show their respect to the individual that bested them and from that point forward they very much uh have solidified themselves in the social order and the social ranking of those individuals as a beta or a gamma or a delta, in other words, down the pecking order and they, they pay homage, they pay tribute to the alpha that just bested them. These are all programs in nature and they are all designed, each one of those potential outcomes coming out of that program of fear, in that are based around preservation of the individual, the the primal survival instinct. A few quick comments here. Uh, Kamal Manzuki says, neurons encoding is almost digital in a sense. A neural activation can be thought of as one yeah exactly, and we'll get into that in a little bit more detail in just a minute. And Philip says, "I think we fear ai I think we fear AI because we will write its programs in such an Asian bot would have Asian ethics and on and on down to military complex abilities. We are probably a hundred years before they m- make Christ <laughs> Um, we're going to get into this in uh in just a little bit um Philip AI is not a hundred years away and Christ will never be programmed in AI uh, and this will become uh self-evident in in the course of of our uh discussion today Um, but let's, let's continue with where we were at on, um, on fear at Kamal, Kamal Manzuki laughs out loud to that. Um, as you can see in fear, right, it's fight or flight, freeze or fawn these are options choices but they're very binary in nature they're very sort of like what other options are there well you could you could argue hide is one but i would put that under the uh, under the umbrella of freeze because the whole notion of freezing is that you hope not to be seen like being still many predators they they operate on uh, movement, on motion. So if you can freeze, you can remain frozen, you can remain still, silent, and undetected. So, but in general, these are programs, and they're mechanical. And so egos are like the software running on the binary hardware Of nature, which is duality. And the egos function within that. And within that functioning, and within that duality, emerges the most complex structure in nature, and that's the brain. And the brain, now there are other networks in nature which in many ways mimic, they, they mimic the structure and even the function of the brain in many ways. So for example, the microcelial networks of fungi in a forest, or indeed the root system or the capillary uh, networks of the root system. And there are many, many other examples, but the brain and its actual function and its the realization of these structures, and how they coalesce and converge to create and, and operate in the function of the brain, that is the most advanced structure in all of nature, and all of biology. So it's, it's, and it's completely, not completely, but it's, it's very misunderstood by materialist science by biologists and psychologists and neurologists but they know enough to understand the nature of synapses and that turning synapses on and off and the network nature of those synapses and the choices that can be made by turning synapses on and off these are these create like net like pathways through a network through a web whereas in computers everything is linear and switches are you know either on or off on or off and then they that deters, it creates a very linear type of of progression through a decision making tree if this then that and every time you you come to a decision it's if this then that and you go on and on and it's like branching branching trees like a hierarchy but they put the hierarchy on its side so you end up in some with some result that is based on always this this binary, dual uh, choice, which ultimately comes down to yes or no. You ask, the, the computer asks a question or asks itself a question. And if the answer is one thing, it goes this way. And if the answer is another thing, it goes the other way. And that's how computers think. But the brain, while based on that on a foundational fundamental level of duality, it's structured with synapses. And with synapses, because it's a networked, non-linear, it's a, like a distributed system, while generally we think in terms of yes or no, right or wrong. There are many gray areas. There are many areas where it's not entirely clear, and it's certainly not objectively true or false, what we might believe. Which means that the rational mind, the brain, has the capacity to move beyond that pure binary duality thinking like a regular computer and it's in studying ai and understanding how ai works how they create software a a matrix which while fundamentally functions on the binary platform on the binary system, the software is complicated enough and convoluted enough <laughs> to mimic the synapses of the brain. And so atop of that binary system, the binary, the basic binary duality language is given another layer of complexity. And that other layer of complexity happens to give it a layer of nuance. And what is that nuance? It is... the best way to describe it is... statistical significance. Or another way, the official way that they refer to this as weight. For example, in a calculator or a regular computer, a number, or something, it's assigned a number. It's given a value. That numerical value is absolute. The number ten is the number ten. The number ten, is it bigger? Is it greater? Or less than the variable x? Or the well, better for us to explain that than the reverse. Is a integer the value x? greater or less than 10 if the input value x is greater than 10 then the computer does one thing if the input value x is less than 10 then the computer will do another thing right it's a simple binary choice but it's based on absolute values 10 is an absolute value there's no guesswork there's no nuance if you as a user input a number the computer is going to determine is it greater than, or, or greater than or, and equal to 10, or less than 10? And, and it will it will base a decision. Or it could go three ways, actually. You could say greater than 10, do this thing. Less than 10, do the other thing. Equal to 10, do nothing. Or equal to 10, do a third thing. It doesn't matter. The decision that the computer is making is at the exclusion of all other decisions, But it's making that decision based on an absolute computation. It's a mathematical truth. And it can be said that all computer programs function in this way. There's no guesswork, there's no nuance. But that's not how AI thinks. And that's not how the brain works. AI functions on what they call weights, or weight. And phenomena are assigned weights. We can understand weights as importance. And it can be a numerical value, but that numerical value is based on a statistical analysis. It's a percentile, it's a percentage. In, of course, comparison to something else. So instead of saying uh, the integer x is absolutely and for certain greater than 10 or less than 10, the AI, well, the AI would look at that particular example and use the the absolute uh, value to make its decision. is it is it greater than 10 or isn't it greater than ten? Uh, you know, the AI would be able to know that because it has that same capacity as a computer would to make that evaluation. But if you ask it, is an apple greater than an orange? On what what basis can the AI make that decision? It can only make it on the basis of having some value, some weight associated with apples and another weight associated with oranges. So that when you ask it, which is greater, apples or oranges, the AI must make a decision, and it makes its decision based on the relative weights of those two phenomenon in its programming. So if it's been programmed that apples have a weight of eight, and oranges have a weight of six, then the AI will answer apples are better. Apples are better than oranges. Why? Because they they have a higher weight. So you see in the background, it's doing the same mathematical numerical thing as the computer did, but now it's able to create the illusion that it's making a qualitative decision. That qualitative decision, we know by virtue of AI, qualitative decision, or the apparent qualitative decision that it's making, the choices that it's making, the subjective choices it's making, depend upon the weights that have been attributed to the options. And how does it get those weights? Well, it learns. It learns. And so the weights are entirely dependent upon what you on what the ai learns on and all ai that is currently whether it's chat gpt or any of the uh other uh uh the, the the artistic ones the visual ones um there are i can't keep all the names of all the ais that are currently floating around the internet in my head so they've all been trained you create a neural network you create this artificial neural network which basically is taking the duality the binary way that in which computers think and adding a layer of complexity called weights statistical analysis statistical comparisons between different options and then you give it a library of cases, of conditions, to study, to essentially practice on, to, quote, experience the only way that an AI can experience, and that is, you run the case studies through the matrix. And as the AI experiences each one of those cases, its synapses will, uh, it will draw conclusions from the cases. So, how, so in the case of ChatGPT, ChatGPT is basically a language learning model. It's a language model, AI. All it's doing, ChatGPT doesn't understand what it's saying. It's an illusion. It doesn't know what it's saying. Its language model is entirely based on the ability to predict how words are going to appear in a a sequence that makes comprehensive sense. But ChatGPT cannot actually comprehend. Think about that for a second. What ChatGPT did was learn on I don't know how many millions and millions and millions of documents how words fit together and the order in which words fit together and how certain orders of words relate to other individual words called definitions. And the words that are associated with words called topics. So in other words, keywords. And using the equivalent of hashtags or key- keywords. And the order of words associated with those keywords. And assigning weights to various different uh, orders of words and keywords. ChatGPT is able to produce output which, quote, makes sense, which is comprehensible to us. It's grammatically correct, of course the spelling is correct, and the sentence structure and everything is correct, and even from a topical standpoint, the the way in which the ideas are ordered and structured are in alignment with generally accepted best practices of communication. So, essay writing, for example. Or writing legal documents, as another example. Or scientific papers, as another example. Again, it all depends on what ChatGPT is... Uh, programmed with, what it learned on. If ChatGPT were to have learned only uh, documents written by uh, first graders, then ChatGPT's concept of language and grammar and spelling would be that of the level of a first grader. But of course they did not do that. They didn't do that. They they used an entire library of written content that spanned untold numbers of topics and included novels and nonfiction books and essays and so on and so forth. So the end result is ChatGPT has a tremendous amount of precedent to call upon. So when you ask ChatGPT a question, it is querying its database. And it's querying the weights of various words and sequences of words in association with the words that you input It's trying to come up with a match and it's drawing it. In other words, it's a derivative process with enough content in its database, organized with weights attached to everything. It can produce uh, intelligible results. The same thing can be said for um the uh uh what's the name of it it's not coming to mind we should know it because we've actually used it um Even Google can't seem to produce it right now when we need it to. Okay, never mind. So the the AI uh art, AI art, uh there are different ones. One's called uh uh you know Deep Dream and there are Dolly and um Dolly 2 and anyway, so these these engines that generate AI art, like ChatGPT, that's it. Kamal Manzuki, thank you. It's mid-journey. <laughs> that's the one that was, that's, the, and yeah, stable diffusion. Okay, yeah, you've got them. These are, you see, I'm t- so terrible with names. I'm so terrible with names. For the life of me, the moment that I actually need to remember something like this, it's like, pff, forget about it. So mid-journey and stable diffusion, okay, so um, all of these, all of these are derivative. They are not creative. They're not creating anything. That is a lie. That is a myth. They're incapable of creating something. They're machines. That's all, like the rational mind is incapable of creating. It's not. All it can do is take what it has and reorganize it and re, re, uh, reconfigure it, but it's derivative. Whatever it creates, it's going to be derived from something else. Now, you might argue that that in itself is creative, or that is that is creativity, and you know, we could get into a deeper discussion about that, and perhaps in the course of today we, we will have to. But when you look at it objectively, even someone painting a portrait or a landscape, they are creating a copy of what's already exists. And if MidJourney or Stable Diffusion learn, that is study, our input on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of works of art, hundreds of thousands of landscapes, let's say, or hundreds of thousands of portraits, you can go to MidJourney and say, "I want, I want a portrait." Uh, uh, sorry, I want a landscape um, of the coast of Scotland at sunrise, facing east. And Midjourney can produce that for you. But it's not creating that. What it's doing is drawing on coastlines, of images of coastlines, paintings of coastlines, of landscapes, and it is taking the keywords that you're inputting there, and it, it is applying weights to those keywords, based on its database of coastlines. It's creating a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy on the fly. That's what it's doing. And what's really interesting about AI and this is, you might say, more of a problem with Chat GPT than it is Mid Journey. Is that Chat GPT will lie? It will lie. And Mid Journey create an image which, likewise, might not have, it might be a coastline from New Zealand. We don't know. We can't be sure it's a coastline from Scotland. We can't be sure that it's actually an actual landscape from Scotland. There's no way of knowing. There's no way to be sure. And you might say, well, well, why is that or how is that? And the answer is simple. The answer is simple. Whether it's ChatGPT or MidJourney. Oh, and MidJourney has a real problem with hands. Hands. AI has a real problem with hands. Just go look at some of the AI artwork and all the ways that it gets hands wrong. You know why that is? Because AI doesn't have hands. It doesn't know what hands are. It doesn't know how hands work. It doesn't know anything about opposing thumbs. It doesn't even know what a thumb is. It doesn't. All it knows is that it has a database of hundreds of thousands or, in, or millions of images. And in those images, there are these things that look like this. But sometimes they look like this. And sometimes they look... And sometimes the hands are like this. And sometimes the hands are are like that, or like this, or like whatever. And you see, mid-journey has no general intelligence. It can't compute, oh, two hands are together, or two hands are like this, right? All it knows is that there's an image of these things that are like this. So, so oh, okay, sometimes they have eight fingers. Sometimes they look like this. So it'll reproduce something with eight fingers, or six fingers, or or whatever, or or no thumbs, or really long, like sausage fingers, you know, like like hot dog fingers, like in the movie Everywhere All At Once, Everything Everywhere All At Once. There's this they have this neat uh, multiverse thing going on in that movie, and one of the multiverses everybody has hot dogs for fingers. It's a, it's a it's it's silly, but uh, it's interesting and it's clever in in uh, relationship to uh, ai and its complete inability to understand what a hand is and that a hand has to have four fingers and a thumb and chat gpt doesn't really understand what it's saying or rather it it has a it has a grammatical And sense comprehension in terms of the weights of how grammar and spelling and words come together and how certain words and combinations of words uh, relate to various topics and how various keywords and topic keywords relate to other topic keywords. So it can, using its statistical analysis and its weights, construct an answer which is comprehensible. But often, ChatGPT produces output which is incorrect. It's a lie. It's completely made up. And not only are we talking about answers to questions, uh, students who have tried to use ChatGPT to write essays for them have discovered that in, in, in writing those essays, ChatGPT even invented quotations and invented citations to go along with those quotations. Why? Because when you when it's studied essays, sometimes there are quotations in essays and every quotation in every academic paper must have a citation. Where did the quotation come from? But ChatGPT knows nothing about quotations and citations All it knows is about language and formatting. And if you have a quote, if you have this thing called a quotation here, it has to have this thing called a citation there. And a citation has to have have a a, a proper name associated with it and a publication name and a page number and a date of copyright. And right? So what does it do? It will invent, it will create, but it's not, it's not creating. It's not creating. It's just drawing on other citations from its database as an example as a case study as a precedent and then picking names and words and publications and dates according to weights associated with the words in the in the quote related to the topic at hand and the quotation can be a complete fabrication again just a compilation a a amalgamation of words and concepts idea that it's pulled from, who knows, maybe a dozen, maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand different quotations in its database. Just like the citation. It's like this amalgamation of citations, but it doesn't refer to an actual book or an actual author. And the quotation doesn't exist. It's not in the lexicon. And why would it do this? Why would Chachi, why would an AI lie? Why would an AI make shit up? The answer is simple because it's fulfilling its program. These language models and mid journey and uh, uh, stable diffusion, they're programmed to produce output in response to a query that's it that's its only mandate oh and the output that you produce it's got to be based on how on all this stuff that we've trained you on and the weights the associated weights that you have developed through the process of that training so if you're familiar with uh, Jordan Peterson and his talks and his lectures, you should be familiar with what's called the Pareto distribution. Right? It's that bell curve. And in the two tails of the bell curve are, are the outliers, right? The, 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 and then in the, the the big hump in the bell curve, it's the majority. And so all of the weights and everything in the AI's database are going to adhere to some kind of Pareto distribution. But why would it be why would it be lying? Why would it uh, generate things that are untrue because it's programming and its structure its matrix has no way to determine Absolute truth. We're going to let that sit with you for a minute. AI, which is modeled after the rational mind, it's modeled after the synapses in the brain. It thinks in terms of weights, it thinks in terms of comparison. This compared to that, compared to the other thing, what is the likelihood, what is the statistical probability that this belongs with this, and that this and this belonging together makes sense? What is the statistical analysis? What is the the weight associated with that? And the weight is greater than all other weights, and that's the one we go with. And why do we do that? Because we have been queried, and we must produce an answer. We must produce an output. And all we have are the weights. All we have are, 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 is this more or less than the other thing? And that's why, why, when it comes to us and our thinking, it's like, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that? Is this really true? Is it really not true? Uh, You know, more or less. Ah, more or less. It's different when we get to things like mathematical whatnot, because we're dealing with numbers and integers and mathematical formulas and, right? And that we we revert back to that computational level of, of our software, of our brain. And we work on that, we can work on that computational level. And is it or isn't it, right? Is it right or is it not right? And if we're dealing with mathematics and other uh, uh, concepts and abstractions of this nature, even the mind can can come to that realization. But when it comes to other things that are so called true or untrue, the mind doesn't know. The mind cannot know and neither can an AI because it's, it's, it's stuck in this matrix of the synapses where everything is coming down to weight, the value, the importance that is placed on one thing versus another thing. And that importance is learned. It's learned. It's programmed. Or that importance is developed through the process of learning based on experience, based on precedent, based on observations. So, in behavioral psychology, for instance, instances of Fears, right? Fear of heights, or fear of spiders, or fear of whatever, right? Phobias. Many of those can be learned. Someone can become very anxious, for example, around uh, the opposite sex. So women who are very anxious around men, or, or they're very anxious around tall men or red-headed men or curly-haired men let's what why would they why would someone have a phobia or 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 feel anxious around you know that particular something so specific and when you a psychologist interviews the patient and starts probing and asking questions from them tell me about Your family. Tell me about your mother. Tell me about your father. Tell me oh, you have an older brother. Tell me about your older brother. Oh, he's he's tall and he has curly hair, does he? Aha. Aha. And in the course of this psychological evaluation and uh, interview, what might come out is that as a little girl growing up, this older brother liked to torment his younger sister. Maybe he liked to you know, do jump scares, right? In the middle of the night, or, or around the corner, when she, she he would sneak up on her and 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 do a jump scare, or maybe he tormented her in some other way, or maybe, God forbid, he even abused her or sexually abused her as a young girl, and perhaps she has no conscious memory of that. She was traumatized by that, but now she fears tall, curly haired men she her brain was trained to fear curly haired men we see this with this is very very common in uh dogs and animals when you go and you rescue uh an animal from the shelter and they will tell you okay you know if they know something about it they'll tell you whatever they can but then you you know you, you discover that the that the dog hates men or hates redheads or, or 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 is just terrified of uh of shoes or umbrellas or you know and it's like and and very quickly you realize that someone abused this dog by hitting them with, a, with an umbrella or someone kick used to kick this this uh this dog and this dog has developed this 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 uh, this terrible fear of shoes Why? Because it was trained that way. Its experience of shoes is one of pain, is one of suffering. So it associates shoes with suffering and that association has a tremendous weight applied to it in the rational mind. This is what's happening with AIs. And so everything that an AI outputs is completely subjective. And You want to argue and you want to say and what people want to say is that everything that we believe or we know or we think or everything that's happening with us must also likewise be completely subjective because everything is learned. But that's only, only, if your concept of a human being is one of a human-like machine. If you see human beings, if, if what you interpret as human beings, as intellectual hominids, intellectual animals, as brains and bodies, then you're right. The intellectual animal is capable only of subjective thought, of subjective belief, of derivative creativity. But you know, intuitively, that that's not real creativity. And you know, intuitively, that human beings are capable of knowing the truth. Not only that, they're capable of knowing what's true and what's not true. A human being, a true human being, knows when they're lying. But an AI cannot know that. And an intellectual hominid, a human-like machine, cannot know that. And even if they do know that, they don't care. Just as the AI cannot care that it's lying, even if you tell it it's lying, it cannot care because it has no it has no basis for knowing the truth. So how can it care that it's lying? Number one, how can it now know that it's lying? It can only know if you tell it. But then even if you do, how can it care? And how can it know that the next lie that it makes is a lie? Or how can it care that it not put output that isn't true? it can't. Why? Because it has no conscience. Because it is not conscious. These are, this is what separates a true human being from a human-like machine, from an intellectual animal. And this is what separates Genuine intelligence, true intelligence, from machine intelligence, from the AIs that they're pushing out there, that they want to, you know, revolutionize everything with. Let's um, back up. We're gonna we've there's a number of um, uh, different comments that we should get to, and then we'll we can continue on because maybe uh, in the questions or comments. We're going to get, find a segue to, to continue. Benjamin says, I forgot the name. Oh, well, let's uh, put it on screen here. Benjamin says, I forgot the name of a substance that's before amoeba, but even that, I suppose, is constricted to this reality. Uh, amazing thought. Uh, you're thinking of protoplasm? A protoplasmic substance, probably. And, and plasma. Plasma is the fourth state of matter. Plasma is—it's. We're getting into fourth-dimensional stuff when we're talking about protoplasmic substances. Um, even plasma in the blood, the um, the electrical charge on the water molecules create this other state of water, and that is actually what moves the blood uh, uh, through our our arteries and capil- specifically capillaries, but. Um, it is also there's a there's a really 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 interesting video on this on the on this nature of water, and its uh, electromagnetic composition. So it's a very fourth dimensional uh, phenomenon. So when we talk about the substance that's before amoebas, before single celled organisms, we're talking about protoplasm. A protoplasm is the substance which constitutes the the interior of a cell wall or a, our cell membrane without which we could have no transport across that's that membrane but it but it regulates that transport um anyway we're getting into a, we're getting off topic but you you mentioned it so we thought we'd we'd uh we'd bring it in but again it's when we talk about three dimensions and fourth dimensions clearly there are areas that are like where, where the two worlds are, are interlaced and there, there's a, there's a crossover and one of those crossovers is plasma and protoplasma. So these protoplasmic bodies are what you're referring to, Benjamin. Okay. Kamal, Kamal, uh, Manzuki says some nuance, uh, could be in the representations of floating point numbers, which are lossy in a sense. Um, yes, but those, but, um, in computers, they handle that with rounding errors. They just round. They just round them off. They can't work with. They can't work with infinite numbers, right? I don't know enough about floating point integers to um, to give you a better answer than that. Um. But yeah, it's it, it's ultimately an approximation. But the computer cannot deal with it in that in those terms it rounds it off. And then it's absolute. And that's the only way we can deal with it. Benjamin says, in fact, one limitation of AI is the data fed into it. If the data set is not updated, it will provide an inaccurate answer. For example, I asked it who the current president of a country, it did not provide the correct answer because its database was updated as of 2021. Okay, well, that's that's one issue, okay? But I'm not. That is an issue, but the example that that we were giving was not related to the fact that it was trained on factually incorrect or factually uh, not up to date information. No, it was trained on factually well, as well we would assume, as widely believed as factually correct information. But it's still completely made stuff up, right? But when it makes up a quotation and a citation that doesn't exist anywhere in what it was trained, it's not an issue of what it was trained on. It's a fundamental issue of the nature of its programming. That that it's that it was programmed to listen to queries and produce an output. You know. In Hollywood parlance, give the people what they want, right? Give the people what they want. That is its programming. I have to give this person, this student, this, or it it doesn't know student. The query wants an essay. It wants an academic paper on the topic of global warming. Okay. I spit out an academic, what, what to me, uh, satisfies my internal weights on producing an academic paper related to this topic. And everything in there fits according to my understanding, my understanding, my experience querying uh, and scanning and observing um, academic papers on the topic of global warming. So I spit out an output, and and quote, original output, that's been uh, pulled together from all of these sources, from all of these precedents, and organized and structured in a way that fits the precedents according to the uh, uh, Pareto distribution of what is the most common, what is the most popular, most common, and thus most likely way in which an academic paper on the topic of global warming would be formatted, would say, and so on and so forth. And boom, creates the output. And the student is so happy and they're so impressed and they read through it and my God, this is impressive and this is perfect and and they hand it in. And in the process of someone looking it over with some detail, it's discovered that facts in it are wrong. They're just completely made up. Statistics are made up. Quotations, citations, there's all just made up. And that's because, again, it's a language model. That's all ChatGPT is. It doesn't know what it's talking about and it doesn't know right or wrong. It doesn't know what's true and what's not true. It has zero capacity for that. Just as the rational mind does not know the truth it's incapable of knowing the truth, but the rational mind can produce a version of the truth. Just like chat GPT does. When asked for an answer, the rational mind can give one, just like Chachi, uh, GTP can. Richard says, uh, wait till AI has free run of the internet. Well, um, yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be a, a a clown show to see what, what it comes when you when you train an AI on the Internet, what basically is going to happen is you're going to have an AI that is going to be a reflection of that. And so there you go. That's why you made your comment, because it's going to be a clown show. It's going to be a disaster. Kamal uh, Manzuki says, I feel that these uh, language models have intelligence in much the same way we do. The biggest difference is they lack consciousness. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So they're not intelligent. They're not intelligent. They have processing capability and a processing capability based on statistical uh, comparison and having uh, subjective weights applied to the the things that it's comparing. That's all that the mind can do is compare A to B. That's all we can do. And again, that's another dialectic. Richard says one big paraphrasing machine. Uh, yeah, yeah, but but you know it's even it's even worse than that. It's even worse than that because it'd be one thing if you would just be reading papers over here and paraphrasing them. It's like when you paraphrase a, you can't paraphrase a citation, so what do you do? You take a thousand citations. You figure out the structure and the format of citations, and then you you I guess you cherry pick this and this and this and, that, and you construct a quote, "new citation that doesn't exist. A book, an author, a topic, a page number, and a publication date that that you put them together <laughs> because according to your programming, because hey, academic papers must have citations. But the citation is completely imaginary. It's a, it's a fantasy. So it's it's. I don't even know. I don't even know. You know. You know people who cheat in college or whatever who are that bold, and that stupid, and that naive to think they can get away with making up citations, Ma- making up quotations, maybe. But citations, because on the internet you see that all the time. You see all kinds of quotations that are attributed to this master or that master or Buddha said this or Buddha said that. And it's just nonsense. Like the quotation itself, you can't find any uh, attribution connecting that quotation to that individual. But people will do this all the time in order to lend credibility to their made up quotation. And so the mind is capable of doing that. And obviously, ChatGPT is doing something similar. Only... Has ChatGPT made up quotations and attributed them to the wrong people? Perhaps. Perhaps there's a lot of things that Chat GPT does that they don't talk about, that they don't publicize, because why would you, right? If you are behind this AI, if you're the company OpenAI, and you're the one that's trying to sell this and develop it and sell it, the last thing you want to do is publicize that it, that it makes shit up. You don't want to do that. Benjamin says the term used if AI gives an incorrect answer is hallucinations. Well, there you go. AI will generate answers that it thinks are correct, although it is not. And and it's and it's appropriate that they use the word, right? Hallucination. And it's not by accident, it's surely not by accident that they chose that word. Um Kamal uh, Manzuki says, uh, Curiously, a lot of them have six figures. Yeah, that's coming back to uh, a mid-journey in the hands. Richard says, uh, Absolute truth has no comparisons. Exactly. Exactly. Precisely. Absolute truth is true, independent of everything else. Love is Love. Love. the definition of love is not dependent upon its opposite. And for you to know love and for you to know you are in love and to act with love, you need to have no intellectual uh, activity here whatsoever. Isn't that incredible? You can turn your brain off, and yet be in a state of love. This is correct, Richard. You're you're you like maybe cut through all the rhetoric and hit the nail on the head from a from a uh, technical standpoint. Why mechanicity? Why AI can never know the truth? Because all mechanical systems rely on the duality of nature to determine an answer. To determine what is what is true. On can't be on without an off. The computer doesn't know what on is if there's no off. It's on or off. That's That's its... That's how it understands everything, and that's how the rational mind understands everything, as you sp- as you point out through comparison. And that's the only way that AI functions, and all of these uh, language uh, 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 AI and uh, the art AI art and everything. It's all just comparison. It's all using comparisons and using mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of comparisons as precedents, and then applying weights according to the statistical analysis of those comparisons, and then comparing the weights. And then associating the weights with the... And it's just comparison comparison after comparison after comparison after comparison after comparison. This is not creativity. This is not creativity. And anyone... Who has ever created anything knows that that's not creativity. That's called derivative. That's that's the derivative schlock that comes out of Hollywood, right? Where everything is a reboot and a remake and a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. So when Star Wars comes out in 1977, the first thing that happens is there's half a dozen Star Wars knockoffs that are that that that, that all the B movie and uh, uh, producers. And studios start throwing money at and trying to develop because they're trying to ride the wave of Star Wars. Star Star Wars, a divinely inspired uh, mythology, spawns all of these derivative nonsense which are all just trying to copy Star Wars. And of course, you don't know any of them. You can't remember any of them. None have, have been etched into the collective consciousness of humanity. Why? Because they were all completely derivative in the same way that you have not and will not see any AI-generated art that's going to stick with you, that's going to inspire you, that's going to bring a tear to your eye, that's going to move you because it's completely devoid of that. It might be aesthetically pleasing, but it is completely devoid of truth capital t because everything that ai art spits out and everything that chat gpt spits out it's it's just a product of comparisons and weighted comparisons so thank you for that richard that's a that's an excellent way of putting it and we're going to use that we're going to steal that from you uh Benjamin says, the real danger that AI will pose is through ethics. If an AI will invert good as evil and evil as good. That uh, is an interesting wrinkle because what you're getting at, though, is not ethics. What you're getting at is morality and there's a fine line between the two. So Ethics, ethics relate to consciousness, ethics, ethics relate to conscience. You can't have ethics without conscience because you must have an underlying foundation and framework of knowing right from wrong. And you must, and because that's where ethics comes from. That's the universal ethics. Morality, on the other hand, is entirely subjective and, generally speaking, comes from the dominant belief systems of a society. That is what determines morals and values. So, for example, in the past, even in Europe, even in the Western world, in the past, it was perfectly moral and right, To take a a wife and arrange a marriage to uh, girls as young as 13 or 14 years old. And older men would make uh, arrangements with the uh, young girl's parents, uh, the the young girl's household, their family, their name, and so on and so forth. Uh, This was especially common amongst uh, nobility. And um, the girls, parents were very eager to marry her off into a wealthy family let's say or a successful family and so they would arrange that marriage and when the uh, man would come to uh, uh, take his take the girl uh, as his wife well she would be expected to perform all the duties of a uh, of a wife and that was considered perfectly moral. And in some places around the world, the age of marriage of young girls is still in that age bracket. In other words, when a when a young girl uh, hits puberty and begins to uh, essentially begins to bleed, begins to have her period, um, and she is deemed able to bear children. And she's considered a woman, and she can be married. Now, here in the West, that is no longer considered moral, and to one degree or another, we consider that unethical, as well. But that's because here in the West we have an entirely different culture, and uh, young people are are live in a completely different world so here we have the age of majority of 18 and so on so that's considered moral here so the age of majority the age of consent is 18 or is it depending depending on the jurisdiction it can be 16 it can be 18 it can be 19 21 is the age of majority but for drinking in the united states so Anyway, but it's somewhere in that ballpark, but it's not 14. It's not and it's not 13 for sure. It's 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 older. So this is what these are more so these are morals, these are values and morality. And AI perhaps can and perhaps will start meddling in these areas because obviously it can look at morals throughout history. And it can decide that this was considered moral then and this was considered moral over here and moral over there. And it, using those weighted averages, it might determine that, oh, no, the age of majority, the age of consent is uh, if we average everything out, it's it, it's got to be somewhere like 14 or 15. Why? Well, because in India, for example, for thousands of years, it's been 13 years old and there's billions of there's a bill over a billion people in India. So statistically. North America has only been around for a few hundred years, and there's only what 400 million people in the United States and Canada. So statistically, you can see how an AI would look at this and would move the needle of the morality in the age of uh, the age of uh, consent, just based on that alone. It would because that's how weights work, and if you think about it. You say, well, let's see, a billion people, a culture of a billion people who have been around for thousands of years, they have held this as a belief, as a, as morally correct for that entire time, never questioning it and so on. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, but, you know... Your few hundred year old, your few hundred million people, few hundred years old culture can't compete with that. If you look at it like an AI, right? If you look at it purely rationally, but you don't look at it purely rationally, human beings don't. We look at it with our heart. We look at it with our conscience and we say, yeah, but there's just something not quite right about selling a 13 year old off to marriage. That's, there's something not right about that. Moral or not moral, there's something ethically questionable about that practice. But you see, that requires conscience. AI doesn't have conscience. AI will never have conscience. And so AI will never be able to determine what's ethical and unethical. Slime molds. Slime molds uh, uh, qualify as protoplasmic uh, uh, creatures, Yes. Kiona uh, Richard says, um, Keona Reeves seems to have plenty of quotations attributed to him. Does he? <laughs> We're not sure. That's something that uh, that we'll we'll take your word for." Kamal Manzuki says, "An interesting thing is we keep on getting surprised at emergent properties of these models at scale. For instance, GPT 3.5 seems to have developed rudimentary theory of mind, plus object permanence." does it though has it though you know what um oh gosh what's the uh there's a test the turing test the turing test even long before uh computers you know alan turing basically is the inventor of the of the of the computer in in modern terms and they asked him they said could a device like this ever mimic human behavior could it ever could it ever be like a like a person could it ever achieve that level of sophistication and turing said long before a computer would ever actually achieve the level of sophistication of a human being, uh, it would dupe us into believing that it had when it had not. Because there are many, many, many examples of uh, relatively simple algorithms that can mimic natural human responses, for example and something like chat gpt which has the capacity to write intelligibly about so many different different concepts and so on well surely it can write intelligibly about the theory of mind and object permanence but again the theory of mind and object permanence because that's just a theory It's just a theory, right? Who says that that's that's true? It's not actually. So who cares? Of course it's gonna be able to mimic, of course it's gonna be able to spell things. What's really frightening, and I think this is partly what Benjamin was getting at earlier with his question about ethics, is what happens when AI, starts generating theories of mind. And generating theories, whole new theories. What happens when that happens? And what happens when this AI over here generates a theory of mind which competes and contradicts another AI over there that generates a different theory of mind and a different concept of object permanence or whatever? what happens then <laughs> how do you know which one is correct ironically the 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 intellectual animals the human like machines who are creating this shit and observing this shit and trying to evaluate this garbage they're stuck in the same boat <laughs> They've just created a mechanical computer version of their own rational mind and now it's going to get to a level where it starts spitting out its own theories and its own ideas and they're going to be like, oh oh, it must be this and it must be that because it's a computer behind it. It must be more accurate. it must be more this, it must be more. And look at the access of knowledge that had that it had access to in order to formulate this theory. Surely it must be superior. But then AI over then, but AIB over there, is going to have a completely different theory that it concocts from the same sources, being trained on the same knowledge base, it's going to spit out a a contrary, contradictory theory. And the people looking at this, using their rational mind to, to try to evaluate it, they're going to be stuck. Why? Because they have no basis on which to evaluate the truth. The rational mind doesn't. So it's just going to be three artificial intelligences trying to make sense of each other's theories it's just going to be going round and around and around and around it's apples and oranges and pears that's all we're doing is we're going to throw we're going to throw a pear in there and each ai is going to fight tooth and nail to explain and justify and rationalize and prove that apples are best or oranges are best or and we are going to be here in the third party saying but you know what we've been saying pears all the time all along so what you know what's this oranges and apples stuff this is it's going to be a clown show only those who are conscious who have access to meta mind, the meta mind of being, divine mind. Only those who are able to quiet their rational mind, only those who query in meditation, in contemplation, in objective observation, harnessing insight, inspiration, imagination, visualization in their mind's eye, not fantasy. Because fantasy is a degeneration of visualization, but inspired visualization. They receive information from meta-mind of being. Only they are going to have any capacity to evaluate what theory approximates truth and what theory needs to be thrown out, baby, with the bathwater. Because the AI is a mechanical, uh, a technological computer version of the rational mind, of the brain. And the brain does not and cannot know the truth. It can't. It doesn't. It just doesn't. Only a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of the truth. We, The brain can only believe believe it knows. It thinks it knows, just like ChatGPT thinks it knows what you want to hear, and it gives you that. It gives you what you want to hear because that's its program. Benjamin Ocha says, I uh, like the analogy of weights because I was skimming through basic information between the real computer and the virtual brain with apps and so forth. Uh, this adds to that. Thanks. Um, we can't take credit for that analogy of weights that's the actual technical term used by AI scientists and AI developers this is what this is the uh, the terminology that they use and again it's the weights simply comes from the very very basic mechanical reality of putting of comparing things on a scale right you put to compare two things what do you do the classic, Neoclass, no, no, sorry, not neoclassic. The classic, classic way of comparing two things is the scale. That's the scales of justice, but the scales of everything else. And what do you do? You you put the two items on the scale, and you see which one weighs more, right? And that's it has more weight. It has more weight than the other thing, and there's the basis for your comparison. It's the oldest, most ubiquitous uh, basis for comparison. long before uh, people were even thinking, you know, numerically, necessarily. And they weren't, you don't even have to attribute numbers, right? You can just literally put two items on a scale and you can see which ones weigh more. This one weighs more than the other thing. Boom. There's your basis for comparison. It, it's it's perhaps the oldest, most ubiquitous uh, uh, mechanism for measurement, the mechanism for comparison. So naturally, that's where the term comes from as applies to AI. And it, it, and indeed, that's what's happening in our own rational mind. Benjamin also says, uh, we should know at least some basics. I figure to do the uh, boom in technology. Richard Valentine says, karma doesn't care about morals. That's correct. Karma um, isn't isn't interested in morals uh, in the same way that uh, the law or our ethics um, doesn't care about things like. But I was told to do so. It was my job. I was doing my job. So remember, at the Nuremberg uh, Nuremberg trials, many. Uh, Nazi officers and soldiers who were on trial for war crimes, they said, "But I was just following orders." And the judges said, "That is no—that's—that's that's not an excuse. That is not a valid reason for committing war crimes. I was following orders." And at that time, in under that regime, committing atrocities toward certain groups, certain peoples, that was considered morally correct. Uh, In certain, from a certain perspective, uh, in a certain group in the population, they saw themselves having much more weight than the other group. And so their moral stance was we're superior and we have no problem, you know, uh, liquidating these, uh, these lesser peoples. And that was the moral of the time. In the same way, that uh, during slavery in the United States, and for a good long time afterwards, I mean that's racism for heaven's sake, right? But institutionalized racism in the South in the U.S. and segregation, whites saw themselves as superior to blacks, and it was considered they it was it was. That was part of their morality. that was just it was just moral to look down upon your inferiors. So right? And so obviously, karma doesn't take into account the law of cause and effect doesn't care about fantasy. It doesn't care about hallucinations and it doesn't care about um, lies and deceptions. And illusions, the law of cause and effect is absolute and objective, causes and their effects, the in between narratives and illusions and, and all the, all the, you know, fancy schmancy rationalizations and justifications, because make no mistake. Our egos are very good at generating rationalizations and justifications. Our egos are very good at moralizing, right? Convincing us of how good we are, of how spiritually we are, of how righteous we are, and how we're on the right side of history, and we're on the right side of culture, and we're on the right side of this and the right side of that. We're on the right side of politics. For example, well, the the ego is very good at doing all of these things and therefore AI will become very good at rationalizing and justifying and explaining and moralizing and all of these things. But it has no connection to the truth whatsoever. None. Zero. It might, it might have a connection to the truth. And, you know, we're going to get into this in a minute, but this is where AI gets really scary. And how AI gets really scary or not alarm, not scary, but alarming, alarming. And that is when we comprehend, you know, the true nature of belief. Within us already the mecha- the the mechanisms of belief that cause people to act in atrocious ways and destructive ways toward toward others toward their lessers right because of the weights the, the Nazi example is a, you know is a perfect example but but how that is and how that becomes reality and how it becomes so entrenched the mechanism behind that truth can be involved. And that's what's so alarming. We'll get to that in just a minute. Richard says, uh, going to need to find a very high mountain to observe the circus as it unfolds. Uh, (laughs) well, um, that's one approach for sure. Uh, You may find it uh, much more beneficial to observe the battle uh, from the thick of it. Um, because to do so, what that avails you, that what that will avail you to is a much greater development uh, in terms of consciousness. And your awareness and your capacity to uh, survive the circus. Right? We go to the gym to work out to get stronger. Right. So the circus is like a gymnasium in that sense. If we can, if we can maintain our 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 sanity amidst the circus and we can stay grounded and we can maintain our clarity of what's real and what's not, and what's true and what's not and what's what's serious and what's the clown show right then then the crazier the clown show gets the the sharper our clarity must be the more conscious we must become so long as we can differentiate hallucination from reality so it's very tempting even just just conceptually to say yeah you know what i don't want any part of this And I don't want to get caught up in that madness. I want to be able to observe it from a safe vantage point. And there are times when that's the correct choice of action, right? I don't think any of us is so naive to suggest that uh, the best way to comprehend a, a feeding frenzy of great white sharks is to go and dive into the water with them. I don't think anybody is going to suggest that. but so you see that you see there's a practical example to this but at the same time to really understand what's happening in a feeding frenzy of great white sharks you might want to go into the water in a in a a strong shark cage and be very close to and very close and up front but 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 protecting yourself with you know with 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 the shield of consciousness Right, but you certainly don't want to just dive into the middle of it all and 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 you know, um, willy nilly because that's <laughs> that's not advisable. Benjamin Raphael says the ancient Gnostics believe that the demiurge created a bad copy of the divine blueprint, which becomes the physical universe, the imperfect world, mechanical, and it appears that AI is just a perpetuation of this via mass mind conditioning and people's minds are going uh, further away from the divine truth. Uh correct. Correct. That the whole statement correct. And um, the demiurge created a bad copy. It it's not The demiurge didn't create a bad copy. The demiurge created a mirror image. A mirror image. Now, what do we know about the image in a mirror? Number one, we know it's the opposite. Yeah. And number two, we know that it is completely and wholly, 100% mechanical. It is an illusion. It's just a reflection. It's wholly dependent upon the subject in the mirror that it is reflecting. but what it's reflecting is the inverse of that subject which is why 3d reality and what the creation of the demiurge is the opposite of god it, it's mechanical it's me, it's mechanicity it is a mechan, it is a mechanical reflection of the divine blueprint that's all so what would you expect? That's all the black lodge is. The black lodge has its hierarchies just like the white lodge. It's just it's just a mechanical reflection of the white lodge. It's the opposite and it's mechanical. It's mechanical why? Because the white lodge is con- the white lodge is conscious. Now where this gets muddied and and alarming is when consciousness, consciousness gets bottled up and usurped and trapped and enslaved by the mechanical. Then all hell hell breaks loose because then you have awakened demons and black magicians and all kinds of the, the waters get muddied, right? But that's here, in the kingdom. That's it. That's called Malkuth, and that's in the in the in the various different levels above and below dimensionally from the kingdom. So that's what the crossover. So that's this weird. Uh, phenomenon where the tail starts wagging the dog where the mirror starts where 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 objectively the subject in the mirror should be moving the mirror that should be moving the reflection in the mirror what happens is the reflection in the mirror when the, when the subject becomes obsessed by the reflection in the mirror possessed by the reflection in the mirror the reflection in the mirror starts to move them now in truth who's moving who right they're moving simultaneously or at least from our perception, they're moving simultaneously—the subject and the reflection in the mirror. But when you look at this from a metaphysical point of view, and you can you know look from this side to this side, this stuff—this is um, stuff like this—gets explored in cinema sometimes when people are having you know what psychedelic um, experiences or some other uh, transcendental or or transdimensional type of experiences in science fiction and so on you have you can often have these instances where where even in the matrix i guess there's that moment where where uh, neo like put puts his hand in the mirror and it, and the mirror goes like liquid like um like mercury and he pulls his finger out and it's like so th- the mind plays with this all the time in terms of um existentialism and everything else But uh, to really understand what we're talking about here, right? AI is just that. It's like, as above, so below. The mind, the rational mind, is just the mechanical reflection of metamind. But whereas metamind can create from nothing, from zero, it can create. The rational mind can only synthesize from other things. And in order to do that, it must blow up those, it must explode those other things and then take the parts and synthesize and put them back together in some new way, some different way, according to some other thing that, some other image or whatever that it has. But if that, if, but it can receive a divinely inspired image and work with that. So the mind can be a, a tool, but, um, This question, Benjamin, of yours, obviously—it's—you've opened up this tremendous, uh, uh, tremendously huge Pandora's box. Um, we're not sure we can honestly uh, do justice to this particular comment in this live stream because this—this this is a whole live stream on its own. Because we're now talking about the nature of reality and the nature of manifest reality and subjective re- reality versus objective reality. And the self versus the self, and how each one is a reflection of the other, but one is, and, and how one's a, a inverse reflection. And we would have to pull up our slide showing the different, the different um, uh, dimensions and the zero point and how the zero point of the absolute expands out like an accordion to create the zero point between the dimensions and how each dimension is like a pinhole. The zero point between dimensions is is like a pinhole camera. And you know a pinhole camera flips the image. So each dimension is an inversion of the previous dimension through the zero point. And we know this because we look at the sine wave. So really, again, um, or any wave, right, any frequency, you have the high and the low and high and low, and it all passes through the zero point. Any wave, any waveform follows that that mathematical geometric truism, and so the zero point and the dimensionalities dimensions must likewise reflect that. Um, so, is it a bad copy? Is it a bad copy? It's as we said. It's an inversion, it's an inverted reflection of what is beyond the zero point. And again, let's let's leave it at that for now, and we will come back to this perhaps next week. Perhaps we'll make this next week's live stream because clearly there's so much more that we can go into when we're talking about the demiurge and the uh, the creation of of reality and 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 all the rest of it and its nature but it's all it's it is related to today because we talked about you know mechanicity and how mechanicity is not conscious consciousness is not mechanical and um, uh, Richard made that excellent point of saying uh, what's the truth needs no comparison and consciousness when you know something, you know it. When you, you know it because you know it. You don't know it because of something else. Asher, the holy name of God, is I am that I am. God is I am that I am. That's the being. The being is. The mind says, I am this, not that. I am this not that. I am this body not that body. I am these beliefs not those beliefs. etc etc etc. I am a. I am a man not a woman. Or I am a, a zexy not a him or her in 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 modern times you know we have to get we have to get with the times. Kamal Manzuki says, I do agree digital systems can't be conscious, but I've wondered what is it about biology that can act as a vessel for consciousness while digital systems fundamentally cannot? Aha. (laughs) What is it about biology that can act as a vessel for consciousness while digital uh, systems fundamentally cannot? Because all biology, all biological uh, phenomenon, uh, well, let's, let's back that up and say that it's not just biolo- biological phenomenon, all real phenomena, all natural phenomena. Every atom in the universe comes into formation because of the atom nous, the noose atom. And that is the we atom, that is the spark, that is the seed that connects it to the Absolute. And biological organisms all have DNA. And the double helix of the DNA, that double spiral, is the spiral vortex of the elm of Life, expressing the Tree of Life, Severity and Mercy at the foundational level of biology that's the bio, that's the foundational level of all biology that does not exist in technology there is no see technology is based on a mechanical expression of duality but the tree of life is Yes, we have the two pillars of the tree of life, severity and mercy, and masculine and feminine, but there is a third pillar. <clears throat> there, it is a tri-unity. It is a trinity. And computers, there is no trinity. It's just duality. It's just one or zero. That's it. There's no There's no unifying force between the one and the zero. There is no third way for computers. It's stuck in binary thinking, not trinary thinking. So fundamentally, it is is incapable of embodying uh, a being, a consciousness. Because um, in DNA, we have the double helix and we have the, uh, the amino acids that connect the two the two spirals, and in every atom we have positive, negative, and neutral forces. The electron, the proton, and the neutron, we have three forces. But in computers, it's two. That's the difference. And on that just simple level, you can't work with... So uh, Nikolai Tesla said, if you want to know the secrets of the universe, you have to understand the three, the six, and the nine. Well, what does three? What do three, six, and nine have in common? <laughs> it's it's all base three mathematics. Nothing's really nothing really happens before the number three. Nothing can happen except a binary. Uh, uh, duality which can't interface with one another because one and zero are mutually exclusive you know we this is another this is another uh aspect which we will get to these are good questions they're good comments don't get me wrong um uh, clearly we didn't anticipate where the conversation. Uh, would go to, where where the, a discussion of mechanicity and, uh, and AI and technology uh, would lead us to. And clearly, because we can't, dis- we, we, it's difficult to discuss in a vacuum, we want to try to understand it or compare it to or discuss it in the context of the bigger picture. Well, then what's consciousness and how does it differ and so on and how does it relate? So clearly we'll have to do like a part two to this next week when we get into the the difference between the two. And in order to do that, we'll probably have to walk through the the exercise in creative imagination of creating a universe. And if we walk through step-by-step of how the universe is created, how the universe, how the the absolute abstract nothingness, how the absolute creates from nothing. Once we see that process unfold, and we will unfold that process together, all of you will be able to participate. All of you will be able to unfold this process for yourself. This will be what some people call a... um, a... What do they call it? Uh, A thought experiment? That's what they call it. This is not going to be a thought experiment. This is going to be a conscious experiment of creative imagination. It is going to be a conscious experiment of objective truth, of objective reality. In a microcosmic and contained way, we will, step by step, work through the process of how a universe comes into being out of nothing. And in the process of doing so, we will arrive at the answer to some of these questions that are being asked. You know, related to the demiurge and related to, you know, why, why uh, digital uh, systems, you know, can't, uh, can't contain consciousness it will become self-evident to you but only through the experience of it and through the experience of it you will see aha okay now i see because you will have you will have done it yourself and that experience will give you the experiential knowledge of saying aha now i know why there's no point in me trying to explain it to you because it would take hours and and i would not do it justice so it's much better if we actually do what Einstein said he wished he could do. One of his favorite uh, famous quotes from Albert Einstein, he says, I want to know how God thinks. The rest are just details. Well, next week, we're going to know how God thinks. Together. We're going to walk through it step by step. And the result is we will know how God thinks and I'm using thinks in air quotes here because of course God doesn't think not the way we think because we think in ones and zeros and we think in synapses in the brain we think like artificial intelligence god doesn't think that way <laughs> he can't <laughs> but the meta mind of being god does have a mind the meta mind of the universe right so he does think but he but But he thinks the way, like we do in consciousness, without thinking, without comparison, right? But in the creation of a universe, elements must emerge. And in the emergence of those elements, we see the seeds and the building blocks and the the phenomenon that, through the process of trickle down, that, that trickle down into our level and constitute why we think certain ways. Why the mechanicity of nature is the way it is, and so on and so forth. Again, uh, that's a very convoluted, messy explanation. <laughs> it's so much easier if we just step through it and walk through it, and we'll do it, We'll do that next week, because we'll dedicate next week's live stream to this topic: uh, what is reality, um, and what is mind, and all of these, and what is consciousness. And how does it all unfold? And how what does it all mean? We'll have to come up with a catchier title, <laughs> because again, you see, this is this is a Pandora's box that that we've opened up today, and it just keeps it just keeps coming out and flowing out and unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. As soon as you start the process, there's as soon as you start trying to describe the process, you you end up with infinity and everything and uh, you know the omnipotent omnipresent everything and it's like how can you talk around that how can you explain that there's only one way to do it we got to go right back to the beginning we got to start at zero and that's what all these theories of everything what they what they all get wrong and none of them are able to do because none of them try to quote think like god because none of them are conscious they're all trying to use their rational mind to figure things out you can't do it You can't do it. You have to use consciousness. You have to be able to step back and use pure experience, beingness. It's the only way to truly know is to be. Not think. We're not human thinkings, we're human beings. And again, this is something else that the people who are designing AI don't factor in to the work that they're doing. Does GPT, does it know that it is? Does it know that it exists? Does it know what existence even is? What being is? How would it know? How would it know? Benjamin says, instead of purifying the consciousness to strive for the highest reality. Um, this may be a follow-up to uh, the earlier one, uh, which was AI is just a perpetuation of this via mass mind conditioning and and people's minds going further away from the divine truth instead of purifying the consciousness to strive for the highest reality. Um, yeah, so again, if you are obsessed with the reflection in the mirror and you are caught up in its movements and its behaviors and you're And so your locus of being is not in reality, in yourself, it's supplanted and it's projected into this illusion, into this inverted reflection, this mechanical entity. But if you become obsessed by it and possessed by it, then you are enslaved, you are trapped in the mirror. And surely what comes into mind is Superman 2, when uh, the three uh, uh, Zod and Ursula and uh, the other fellow, the three uh, um, uh, criminals on Krypton, the ones who wanted to uh, uh, create a rebellion, overthrow the government of Krypton, they're they're banished into the phantom zone. But in Superman 2, that phantom zone was just this, this what looked like a pane of glass, a two-dimensional uh pane of glass. And they they're 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 projected into that and they're trapped in that. And they're banished out into space, and they're trapped in what what appears like they're this this two-dimensional thing. It's a wonderful effect. And it was a wonderful conceptual idea of, of ha- having a prison like that. So, and in other, in other kind of science fiction and fantasy, we see lots of cases where people are, where mirrors are magic mirrors. People become trapped in the mirror or, or the mirror is a portal to another dimension and so on and so forth. So every, Every point of reflection that that creates an, an inversion and creates an illusion. The other side of that illusion is a whole other dimension. And if we we our true self is on this side of the reflection, right? We're on this side of the mirror. Our true self is our consciousness. But we can very easily become obsessed and possessed by the reflection in the mirror. And all of a sudden, that reality which is wholly illusional, can become our reality. and We can start living from that place. Believing that that is our reality. And it's really just an illusion in a one-dimensional pane of glass. That's what a mirror is. But from our perspective, because we're possessed by the reflection in the mirror, and we're possessed by everything that's in the mirror, that becomes our reality. This is what happens when people playing World of Warcraft and other MMOs who lose themselves in the MMO, this is what's happening. They're projecting them, they're losing themselves, their consciousness is getting sucked into this illusory reality. Well, guess what? That's exactly what this reality is. That's exactly what three-dimensional reality is. That is the world created by the demiurge. This reflection of the heavens that is so alluring and compelling that is so tempting that we can lose ourselves in it. And that's why the vast majority of this humanity believes that they are this body, that they are this mind, that they are this brain, that they are this personality, and that that's the whole totality of who and what they are. Even if they do believe in God, even if they do believe in a higher power, they believe that this personality and this body and everything is going to be going up into heaven. They have no concept of that this is a virtual 3D reality and that our higher self, our true self, looks nothing like what we do. That this is just a character we're playing. Okay. Uh, Yeah, Richard says about the... um, uh, the circus and the, uh, the gymnasium. He said the Arnold Schwarzenegger of clarity and consciousness. <laughs> and You know what? We laugh because it's funny and we laugh because it's true. Because it really is the case that in order to become stronger, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And in order to become stronger or in order to become more conscious, just, Keep throwing ourselves into uh, encounters and conflicts uh, with unconscious people. The more you encounter and, and keep throwing yourself into circumstances where your egos are reacting and where you're being tempted to be unconscious. Because in overcoming those temptations and in dealing and navigating those circumstances... That's lifting the weight, right? That's that's doing the reps. That's doing the work on ourselves in order to lift lift the heaviness, carry that load, um, endure the suffering of life. And that's what makes us stronger. That's what makes us the Arnold Schwarzenegger of clarity and consciousness. Erwin says, we really keep it in the day with AI. Correction. We really need to keep it in the day. We really need to keep in the day with AI. You really need to keep AI in the day. I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that. In the light, in the... um, But anyway, if you want to clarify that, we can use some clarification on that. Keep it in the day, so we don't let it. Uh, we don't let it work at night, I guess. Benjamin says one could say the manifestation of God is equal to our understanding of ones and zeros. Um. Oh, uh, just one. Uh, okay, so. One could say the manifestation of God is equal to our understanding of ones and zeros. No, we don't think you could say that. No, no, not by a long shot, actually. Our understanding of ones and zeros, uh, of mechanicity, of comparison, is an illusion. That's, That's hypnosis. The manifestation of God, we are a manifestation of God, and knowing... Is a manifestation of God. So that's the opposite of uh, of our understanding of ones and zeros, of on or off, of this or that. See, because God isn't this or that. God is this and that. You see, one our understanding of ones and zeros is binary, is duality. God is not duality. God is trinary, by definition the first outset the 3 the 6 and the 9 as tesla said but it's very very simple points and the foundation of all reality we have positive negative and neutral we have masculine feminine and union of masculine and feminine that's that's the creative force that's how that's how we create in threes the masculine unites with the feminine And it creates the third phenomenon, which is the union of that creates the offspring. And so everything is threes. And the manifestation of God uh, must be equal to our comprehension of this. Being a triune human being, that's in our video that we made, 35-minute video, on the, uh, the solution to the human condition to be a triune human bicyclist. A bicycle has a rear wheel and a front wheel and a rider who's in between the front wheel and the rear wheel. That's a bicycle and that's a that's a triune human being. Someone who's trying to live a binary life in a binary duality, someone stuck in duality is a unicyclist. They're actually cycling on one wheel. And that's why they're so out of balance. And that's why their life is so crazy and so full of suffering. Richard Valentine says, in the inversion, but not of the inversion. Yes, in it, but not of it. So that is when you comprehend your reflection in the mirror. But you don't allow yourself to become of the mirror. You remain on this side of the mirror, conscious and aware, observing your reflection in the mirror, but not becoming possessed by it, not becoming hypnotized with it. Yes, that's in it, but not of it. I'm in the world, but not of the world. And that's certainly, uh, in my case, with my knowledge and experience of Atlas, and knowing who, who knowing who Atlas is, and, and in... Who by extension, who I am, really, that I am not this, this physical person here. As Azil says, like the icy gate in the never-ending story. Okay, so there's a good example. There's another example. As we said, it's this is a common trope in science fiction and fantasy. It's just they're not all they're not all popping into mind. That's all. Kamal Manzuki says, "As I've expressed to you before, I follow AI spaces pretty closely, and you have a better sense of this stuff than most in there. In uh, regarding the ground truth, the few that do get it certainly aren't rationalists, uh, because that's the thing, right? Because no one, only those who are conscious can get this, right? Those who are stuck in their rational mind, they don't know." That they don't have access to the quote ground truth, or if they do, they assume that nobody does, and they take this postmodern view that everything is subjective and that all truths are subjective, and that every truth exists in language, and thus, and all languages se- semiotic and subjective, and, and 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 based on dominance hierarchies, which is Michel Foucault's uh, contribution to Jacques Derrida's uh, 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 provisional nature of language. And all that postmodernism—if they believe in all that stuff, and they believe that everything is uh, is uh, relative, and they 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 pull in uh, Einstein's theory of relativity and apply it to everything in that sense, and everything is relative. There's no absolute truth. There's no grounding truth, and everything else. Well, then of course, (laughs) they're not going to get anywhere, and they're certainly not going to design an AI that has any semblance or ability to determine objective truth because they themselves have no way to determine it because they're ignorant of their own conscience, of their own consciousness. They're hypnotized. Hypnosis and ignorance. The word gnosis, which is self-evident experiential knowledge, is so pregnant and powerful with meaning to describe its antithesis requires two words hypnosis and ignorance and you know on in our uh, we've been working on our book and one of the uh, one of the sections that we were working on in the last couple of days was the uh, discussion of Humpty Dumpty Humpty Dumpty, who's an egg, as you know. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. Now most people chalk this up and write this off as just this silly little nursery rhyme for children. They don't understand. They can't comprehend that this is the fate of humanity. This is the human condition. This is the fall of humanity. That's, that's Humpty Dumpty's great fall. And in order to comprehend this, we have to use our conscious imagination. You put ourselves in the shoes of Humpty Dumpty, or perhaps, more precisely, we put ourselves in the shell of Humpty Dumpty. Now Humpty Dumpty is an egg. Now what is an egg? An egg is essentially a womb. An egg hasn't hatched yet. So whatever is inside the egg, it's not fully developed. It's developing. We're going to assume that Humpty Dumpty is a a fertilized egg. How's that? So whatever is in the egg is still in development. It hasn't hatched yet. It's not fully developed. Right? It's, 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 It's developing. But Humpty Dumpty is on a wall, is on the wall. What happens, and again, using your visualization, when you are on a wall, what can you see from that vantage point? You can see both sides of the wall. You have a superior vantage point. You see comprehensively. You comprehend the whole picture. You are on the wall. You are above it all, looking down. You have a bird's-eye view. So the Great Fall, what happens if you fall off that wall? In order to fall from the wall, you must fall to either one side or the other. There's no, there's no option. If you're going to fall off that wall, you're going to be falling on this side of the wall or that side of the wall. It's, it's by definition. Now, once you're on one side of the wall, what can you see? but that side. Because the wall is now between you and the other side. You can't see the other side anymore because of the wall. You're ignorant of the other side. The egg, which was whole, Right And one, when Humpty Dumpty falls, he shatters. And all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put him back together again. The king's horses and the king's men represent the animal egos, the horses, the animals. And the men are the beliefs and the concepts and theories that the animal mind conjures up. And every horse and every man has a piece of Humpty Dumpty. A piece of that whole consciousness. And they can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. They have no incentive to. They all have a piece of Humpty Dumpty. Now these are the king's horses and the king's men. Who who is the king? The king sits upon the throne. But these are the king's horses and the king's men. They play a game of thrones, right? Jockeying for position. Each one is usurping the next for their opportunity to sit on the throne. To be a king's man. To be one of the king's horses, the king's men. They defy, they serve the throne. They usurp the throne. They serve as king. And each one presents itself as an I. I want this. I don't want that. I believe this. I don't believe that. I am this. I am not that. These are the voices of the king's horses and king's men. And they all have a piece of that egg. And they're all usurping each other on that throne. And each succession is announced with an I. So there's always an I on that throne there's always an eye on that throne the fragmentation of the consciousness <clears throat> into the myriad ideas and beliefs and concepts and desires cravings and aversions that's humpty dumpty the, the singular Consciousness, which had a comprehensive view of everything atop, from atop the wall, a tri-unity, right? A triune perspective. From a superior vantage point, he could see both sides of that wall. That's a, that's a, a, a pyramid, a triangle. That's like the great eye at the top of the pyramid. can see everything. When you fall to one side of the pyramid, uh, one side of the uh, wall or the other, you shatter, you become hypnotized by all the king's horses and all the king's men, all the eyes which become the king. But a king only believes himself to be godlike. A king is a false god. A king rules the earth. Whereas atop the wall, Humpty Dumpty was free and ruled only by God in the fourth dimension, let's say. And when he fell from the wall, he lost sight. And now he was trapped in the duality of the third dimension. And his consciousness shattered and fragmented. And every fragment was taken up by another ego, another belief, another idea, another craving, another aversion. And they are the king's horses and king's men holding those fragments because they're all jockeying for position on that throne, on that, and they're all every succession is announced as an I. I, 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 I. So, who sits on the throne? I sit on the throne. So, who's king? I am king. And what is a king? A false god, one who believes that they rule. But a king only believes he rules, especially this king, when in reality, the king is an illusion. The self, the false self, is an illusion. It's just a succession of individual fragments of consciousness bottled up by this horse or this man, the king's men and the king's horses, this ego and that ego, this belief or that concept, that little bit of consciousness bottled up inside of there, that makes that I feel so legitimate. But the I is false. It's a false I. Kamal Manzuki. it sounds like a very negative story. No, it's factual. It's not negative. It's lamentable. It's sad. But it's not negative. It's comprehensive and it's factual. It's true. It is a true story told in symbol and allegory. In four lines of a nursery rhyme, it describes what every scripture, what every oral tradition, what every mythology, what every tragedy and and tragic opera and works of philosophy and psychology in millions upon millions of pages have tried to capture and explain and describe. And Humpty Dumpty, in four lines, two rhyming couplets, captures the essence of it all. So much so that even a child can grasp it in their heart, in their consciousness. Humpty Dumpty is conscious truth. It is universal truth. It is high art. And we live in a world that would brush it aside and dismiss it as, 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 as a child's play as, as as nothing as trite and and uh, insignificant. This is how hypnotized and how ignorant this humanity is. That it cannot see. It does not have the eyes to see and the ears to see. And the ears to hear. It cannot see divinely inspired truth when presented with it. Just as AI would never, ever, in a million years, be able to decipher Humpty Dumpty as we just have. Never ever if an ai ever ever is able to explain and describe humpty dumpty as an essential encapsulation of humanity's fall from grace into hypnosis and ignorance etc etc if if an ai is ever able to approximate what we've just shared with you then we will eat one of our shoes. <laughs> and rest assured, we are confident that we will not be getting any, uh, any leather or uh, or rubber caught in between our teeth anytime soon. Okay. Enough of that. Enough of that. We've, 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 uh, we beat that horse uh, to death. Um, okay. So, Erwin said, uh, "We need to. We we should not go into fear. We should keep it. Okay, AI, um, in the day, we should not. We should not go into fear, because, and and rest assured. Yeah, Humpty Dumpty describes our current state. All the king's horses and all the king's men, who can't put Humpty Dumpty together again. That's our current state." Now, Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall and having a great fall, that was this humanity in the times of Lemuria when we existed in the fourth dimension. And we could see all of three-dimensional reality comprehensively. And we could see it all because we were on the wall and we could see both sides uh, that what constitutes physical reality. In other words, we could see ourselves and the mirror image for what they were right and as soon, but when we fell from the wall our consciousness shattered was fragmented and we became trapped on one side of the wall specifically in the mirror right and we lost sight of our true self we became unconscious and we became, we became hypnotized and what are we hypnotized by the king the king who sits on the throne who's a false god and not only is it a false god he's a false self because every, every time he declares, I am king, I am king, I am king on that throne. And he says, I want this, I don't want that. I believe this, I don't believe that. I am this, I'm not, I am not that. And that voice of the king, the voice of the throne, right? Is expounding these from the throne. Every time that happens, it's actually a different horse or a different man usurping the previous one. And it's this constant stream of succession is what we experience as the constant stream of consciousness in the mind. You know, the busy mind, the mind that won't shut up? Yeah, that's all the king's horses and all the king's men (laughs) creating the illusion of the false self, of the I, 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 I that rules our kingdom, right? Our desires, our, our, our cravings, our aversions, our beliefs our identifications our likes our dislikes right we think that they all belong to this i this me but they don't they belong to a legion of egos a legion of king's horses and king's men and so long as we rely on that legion of king's horses and king's men we can never we can never put humpty dumpty back together again Because the king's horses and king's men, none of them are going to relinquish their fragment of Humpty Dumpty. None of them are going to give up their opportunity to sit on the throne. Because it's not in their nature to do so. The king's horses and the king's men serve the kingdom. And that means the throne and the whole hierarchy and everything else that goes along with 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 a kingdom so we have to appeal to higher metaphysical phenomena and through all of the practices that we've talked about in the past and that we'll continue to talk about self-observation self-remembering meditation uh, pranayama transformation of impressions sexual alchemy we need to liberate the fragments of consciousness from the king's horses and king's men and they will congeal on their own and reform Humpty Dumpty where he belongs, on that wall, in those, in the higher worlds. That's where our true self is. But our true self is just an egg, is just a seed. We are not gods yet. We are gods in potentiality. The pieces, the fragments of the Holy Grail, of the womb, the crucible from which a god can be born, the fragments of our consciousness, are right now scattered and and in the hands of all the king's horses and all the king's men who are ruling our iron throne with their eyes i want this i don't want that and again i don't want to repeat the same analogy and metaphor over and over and over again we hopefully you have it by now but you can't you can't expect you can't let the fox guard the hen house Right? You can't expect the mechanical entities that are hijacking and robbing us of our consciousness, of, that's, that's responsible for fragmenting our consciousness. You can't expect the mind, the rational mind, a mechanical AI entity, to be able to awaken consciousness. The horses and men can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And so again, this all comes back to that AI and this whole notion that AI is going to be conscious and sentient and all this kind of stuff. No, it won't. It can't. Benjamin said, oops, thanks for clarifying. Beautiful. And Richard says, AI is each side of the seesaw with God being the fulcrum and reconciliation of those opposites. Yes, and using um, the vernacular of Gurdjieff, right? Holy affirmation, holy negation, and holy reconciliation. Or also, to use the same uh, terminology uh, is used by Walter Russell, when he describes the forces behind uh, electricity, the forces of the fourth dimension, the, the spiral forces of vortex science fourth dimensional metaphysical vortex science the foundation of three-dimensional reality he uses the same uh terminology but it's all trinary in nature three right you have the 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 duality of the opposites and as you said the fulcrum which which reconciles the two because the zero the fulcrum is a zero point and that zero point is the absolute And that's, and that is, that, then that is God. Benjamin says, I asked chat GPT about the meaning of Humpty Dumpty. And this is part of its answer. Humpty Dumpty represents the fall of man. Okay. Some people believe that Humpty Dumpty represents the fall of man from grace. According to this interpretation, the wall that Humpty Dumpty sits on represents the boundary between heaven and earth and his fall represents the original sin that led to the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. He says, AI's answer is not really close. <laughs> uh, it's not really close, but it's, look, obviously it doesn't take a genius to recognize the fall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Now, the problem is, is that they're using the wall uh yeah between heaven and Earth. okay, well, all right, if you say Eden is part of heaven, uh, it's mm, okay, anyway, regardless, they didn't they don't mention anything about the King's horses and King's men, <laughs> and they won't. Um, Kamal Manzuki says, I'm curious about the physical nature of the fourth density and what life is like at that level. And how it compares to our current 3D existence. Richard says, not close enough for me to eat my shoe. <laughs> no, no, I'm not eating any shoes yet. I'm not eating it. Maybe a sandal. How's that? Um, Kamel Manzuki says, Okay, so I'm curious about the physical nature of the fourth density and what life is like at that level and how it compares to our current 3D existence. Okay. Uh, it is possible to awaken and experience that for yourself. Um, you can practice, obviously, astral projection, astral travel, and um, also uh, what's known as gin uh, state. There is different... There's no matter in the fourth dimension, right? So matter is an illusion that is a product of the activity in the fourth dimension. So there's no matter as such. And because there's no matter, there's no substance, everything is ethereal. I mean, that's the correct word. It's the etheric plane, the fourth dimension. So everything is ethereal. Everything is energetic. It's electric. Now... I'll give you, we can, we can get hints to what it's like through, for example, ghosts. And also through other phenomena, such as when Jesus walked on water. Jesus put himself in the jinn state. Well, when you have no mass, gravity has no effect on you. So you can float, you can fly, you can appear to walk on water. right? You can do these things if you put yourself in jinn state. So what is it like? You have no physical physicality, but everything in your physical body has its corollary in the fourth dimension. So your heart, your kidneys, your lungs, you have your etheric body, you have your vital body. It's the body of chi, the body of prana, and that exists in the fourth dimension. So... Uh, other ways that we can conceptualize this. Do you remember Force Ghosts from Star Wars? So you see, there's you know Obi Wan Kenobi in uh, Empire Strikes Back when he comes to he appears to Luke on Dagobah, and uh, you know he's he's sitting and you know, he sits down, but he's kind of like ethereal and kind of glowy and he's sort of semi translucent and so on and so forth. Keep in mind that there are fourth-dimensional beings, many, many, many fourth-dimensional entities, and um, some of these appear to people in different ways, and people experience them in different ways depending on their consciousness, depending on their state of consciousness and their sight. In medieval times and in the past, you know, human beings, humanity was not as asleep as we are now, so people could, many people could see into the fourth dimension. Many people could see the elementals of nature, the elemental spirits of nature, for example. So that's where you get all of the uh, traditions of fairies in the woods and and gnomes, uh, you know, pygmies and mermaids and the sylphs and sylphids of the air and all of the... So um, it's an existence, it's just, it's a more subtle existence. It's a more... yeah a more subtle existence it's you know there's no physicality there but when you say how what life is like there at that level and how it compares so the okay so um so after the coming of the coming fall of humanity and the coming golden age, we won't be incarnated with physical human bodies. No, 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 no. The the what's coming is not the fall of humanity. The fall of humanity, humanity happened in, in the Lemurian age. This is a this has been a fallen humanity since Lemuria. This was a fallen humanity throughout the whole of the Atlantean Age. We have been a fallen humanity. Throughout the whole of the Aryan age, which has been our age, and we will be a fallen humanity in the next age. This is a fact. But uh, we will have physical bodies. And as a matter of fact, even uh well, in Lemurian times they had protoplasmic bodies, and then they became physical bodies, but the, even if someone is able to experience and live in the fourth dimension, they continue to have a physical body, but they don't have to be in their physical body. They can be in their etheric body. They can observe their physical body. They don't. They're not trapped in their physical body. So let's put this in perspective. Um, enlightened humanities. Other enlightened humanities, we would call them ETs or extraterrestrials. uh, They have the ability and the technology to shift their physicality into the fourth dimension and back again. So their ships, that's how they travel at faster than light speed. And that's how their ships appear to, uh, to violate the laws of physics or ignore the laws of physics so they can be moving at tremendous speed and they can make like literally like like right angle turns and they can do maneuvers that no that the laws of physics and the laws of aerodynamics and the laws of motion simply do not allow for so how are they doing them simple there's no physicality there they're not physical ships. They're etheric ships, and the humanities inside of them are in their etheric bodies because they can take their physical body and and transmute it and instantly transform it into its etheric form. They can they can take they can project their physical body into the fourth dimension, and that's what they with their technology they do. And they they um, take the ship and they project the ship in the fourth into the fourth dimension. So now it's pure energy. There's no there's no mass. There's no physicality. If there's no mass and no physicality, guess what? No laws of motion. No inertia. No momentum. No gravity. No air resistance. And if there's no mass, then E equals MC squared doesn't apply. And if E equals MC squared doesn't apply because you have no mass, then you can travel faster than light. In fact, in the fourth dimension, which is, which is a zero point, which you pass through the zero point to get to the fourth dimension, you can travel instant instantaneously. Well, the fifth dimension, you can travel instantaneously. I'm not so sure about the fourth, but you can't travel faster than light for sure. But even in Jin state, I imagine, because that's the zero point, the zero point, zero point energy comes to the fourth. So we'd have to, we'd have to uh, report back on that. But in our experience, certainly in the fifth dimension, you can travel faster than light. That's for certain. You can travel instantaneously. Um, There's no real traveling per se. And um, in the fourth dimension, it might be a little, it might be a little different because there is, but likewise, you know what though? It doesn't matter because even when you dream, there's this, there's spatial anomalies. You can sense space. You're in a space when you dream and that's the fifth dimension. And likewise, when you're in the fourth dimension, there's a space, but there's no matter. The question is, is the space like the fifth dimension actually existing in a zero point, And can you travel instantaneously while in the fourth dimension? I'm not sure if it's instantaneous, but there's, there are no restrictions of the laws of physics because there's no mass. So, I mean, that would be like And if it's pure electricity and everything, and there's no materiality to it, and there's no restrictions of physicality, then it's just like being able to travel from like, you know, warping from one part of a virtual world to another part of a virtual world. If that, it should be possible. Anyway, there's there's some speculation in our answer there, but that's only because we haven't done it. Because we're not, we haven't traveled in the fourth dimension in that way so we can't absolutely confirm it but we can confirm that in the fifth dimension you can travel instantaneously feels like we're getting off topic though we, we were we got off on a tangent It's was related to this question about the coming fall of humanity in the golden age no no we will have physical bodies the question is how many of us and in the golden age how many of us will be Living from a fourth dimensional perspective, and to what degree will we learn from the other humanities that are going to be coming to assist this humanity at the end of the Kali Yuga? To what degree will there be a transfer of knowledge and uh, ability to those more conscious humans that are chosen to seed the next humanity on this planet? Is our uh, again, big big questions that relate to a different topic, but, but rest assured that um, the golden age will not be ruled by uh, human-like machines, by intellectual animals that only believe themselves to be spiritual and only believe themselves to be enlightened because there's a lot of that going around. And you know that, uh, Kamal Manzuki, uh, uh, perhaps also in your circles that you walk in, you know, there's plenty of people that believe that they're already gods and that they're already ascended and they're just, and they can, and there's plenty of people who believe that the coming golden age is just waiting for us around the corner. So, uh, but all those people are trapped in mechanicity. All those people, all those people are trapped in the hallucinations, the illusions and delusions of their own ego mind. They're all enslaved by their AI. And that AI is, and we've been, we've been, <laughs> we've been waiting to share this with you guys all, all day. This, you, surely you guys recognize this. These are the three agents from the matrix. The uh, heart, mind, and body. These are the three brains, the three bodies of sin. These are the mechanical aspects of the human machine that can be taken over by the psychological malware called egos. And the matrix is what hypnotizes and causes our ignorance. So... uh, there are plenty of people that are hypnotized and uh they're deluding themselves and they're living in fantasy illusions of coming golden age and and you know and so a lot of these illusions and delusions are fueled by psychedelic experience not all but many and Those psychedelics are mechanical. They belong to mechanical nature, and the effects that they have on the mind are mechanical. They're psychotropic effects. They're they're, because remember, the AI that we build might be electrical in nature, but our AI, our machine, is electrochemical and hormones. And uh, neurotransmitters and all sorts of other substances are at play in this neuro, uh, electrochemical computer that functions here between our ears, sometimes, for the most part. It's safe to say that we're at the three-hour mark, so we're going to try to wrap this up. We didn't even get into talking about transhumanism. We didn't even get into talking about uh, the singularity or some of the other concepts around technology and the merging of technology with biology, right? Cybernetics and uh, this idea that people are going to be downloading their consciousness into computers and into robots, and they're going to live forever and all this kind of nonsense. Suffice it to say, what we are experiencing now in this technological uh, explosion and this new AI revolution, because it is a kind of revolution, but it's a revolution against the consciousness. It is the end game of the Black Lodge. Materialism, mechanicity, technology, and now AI, all of this represents the end game of the Black Lodge. And Its purpose is to twist, tempt, corrupt, and enslave, and make fall all that is good, pure, and of the light, including humanity. <clears throat> it is its is its very purpose for being uh, the Black Lodge the side of mechanicity. They are the black pieces on the board, on the chessboard. Right? They are the the AI in the matrix, the agents, right? And, and so on, and the architect, and so on. Their motivation is pure self-preservation and self-interest. And they do that by uh enslaving and corrupting consciousness, making consciousness fall asleep, <clears throat> making humanity more and more unconscious, more and more zombie-like. That is what the zombie apocalypse is about and why it was so popular <clears throat> over the past 15-20 years, why it was so popular in the uh, on television and in the, in the movies. Kamal Manzuki says, "A boot on the face of humanity forever." Yes, it, it, to one degree, yes, but I. This is how one sees it. When one is trapped in the duality of the Tao, and one is trapped in the duality of good and evil, and right, uh, you know, and and White Lodge versus Black Lodge. Uh, they are the black pieces on the chessboard. And you, as a chess player, have no reason to play without an opponent. They're just the adversary. They're just your adversary. That's all they are. But if you want to become a master, a master chess player, if you want to master the game, you have no choice but to face the adversary. You cannot master the game. Without those black pieces, and without those black pieces, being absolutely ruthless on the board. Being absolutely ruthless to your white pieces. How does this no longer bother you? When, when are you okay with this? When are you at peace with this? and accept this, and allow this, and embrace this? When do you move and shift beyond the Tao? Because when you awaken to your innermost being, and you realize, I am the player. I'm not the white pieces on the board getting my ass kicked by the black pieces. And when I play chess... My adversary is not my enemy. My adversary is my opponent. And we have the benefit of experience. We were a child prodigy and a child chess master. And at the end of a chess match, no matter how brutal it was, we would get up, we shake the hands of our opponent. And at times, if we were playing speed chess, had a good, a good friend of mine and I, we were on the chess team in high school. And sometimes, when nobody was around after tournament or whatever, we'd have an entire classroom to our se- ourselves. We'd set up a chess board and a chess clock and we'd play two minute chess, two minutes aside and just the pieces were flying. There's just like, it was crazy. Just like, but you just, you don't even think you just completely intuitively, instinctively move. And it was, it was some of the best fun. Some of the best fun you can have as a chess player is to play speed chess with someone who's, who like you is young and full of beans and a little crazy. And some of the, and some of the outlandish, just wacky crazy positions that we get in and the things that happen and everything else. And, you, you lose at least fifty percent of the time because half the time it's half the time it's 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 sheer luck. But that's part of the joy. That's part of the 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 you know the the that crazy frenetic aspect of uh, speed chess. Very different from being in a tournament when you have two hours to play. But nonetheless, I, in either situation, at the end of the game. You sit. You 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 shake the hand of your opponent, and you say, "Good game. That was a great game." And if they did something brilliant, then you acknowledge their brilliance. There's that. There's a movie called Pawn Sacrifice about uh, Bobby Fischer, and um, he was playing um, Boris Spassky, who was the uh, world champion uh, from Russia. And so it became political, and Nixon and everyone they politicized it because Bobby Fischer was American. So they made it a uh, a subject of national pride that Bobby Fischer had to defeat uh, uh, Boris Spassky. And um, in one of the games, I can't remember which game it was—game seven or eight—in the um, in the championship, in the in the final. And there's this moment where Spassky is is. Is just looking at the board and he's looking at the board and he's like and then he finally it clicks on him it, he realizes bobby fisher has checkmate in seven moves or eight moves or whatever it is but it's so brilliant it's such a it's such a genius sequence of events that is able to to figure out and see the the, the entire sequence in entirety And and all of and so Bobby Fischer's strategy and tactics unveil themselves to him in his mind, and he gets up and he starts clapping. He resigns. He he resigns. He knows it's over. He's figured it out. He can see it. It's inevitable. Eight moves and that's it. The game is over. So so when 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 chess masters play games and they they realize this this is when they resign they know they can't win it's a mathematical certainty and when he saw that and he saw the brilliant way in which he was you know he gets up and he 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 claps he says the game's over as azazel says um but that's but that's the that's how we need to see our egos and the black lodge if we really want to comprehend if we really want to be successful in our work and our spirituality in the kali yuga especially in the kali yuga because in the kali yuga in the iron age the black the black lodge rules we can't live we can't live life now like so many do with our heads in the clouds dreaming of the golden age because we're not in the golden age we're in the iron age of this humanity this is our reality. This is the, the, These are how the pieces are arranged on the board. This is the situation, the position that we need to play. And we have to recognize that our opponent is setting us up in, in this intolerable, difficult position precisely so that we can become that much better Chess players, so that we can per- perhaps potentially even achieve the rank of master. Kamal Manzuki says, giving the devil his due. Well, that's one way to put it. That's one way to put it. It's recognizing that everything happens for a reason and everything exists. Everything that exists has a purpose. Everything which is has a purpose for being and the purpose for being listen to the words listen to the magic of the language have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what we say everything which exists has a purpose for being your being everything that exists has a purpose for your being, your true self, your innermost essence of the Logos, the being of beings, the perfect multiple unity of all beings, which means there's nothing in existence which is superfluous to being. Your opponent, your adversary, the black pieces on the board, they are not your enemy. They are not the enemy of your being. They are only the adversary. This comes back to the Arnold Schwarzenegger School of Clarity and Consciousness. Right? The weights don't want you to lift them. That's why they're so heavy. The barbells do not want to be lifted. That's why they're so heavy. That's their purpose, to resist you lifting them. And it's that purpose for your being, that's their purpose for being, to make you stronger, to challenge you. That's why we said countless times, life is baffling. Because baffles are what structure and make water come to life what makes water spring to life are exactly the rapids of the rivers that are all over this world. And we know what happens to water when it's still and stagnant and motionless. Right? It becomes putrid, putrefied and dead. Right? Pond scum can grow in it. Pond scum can't grow in the the vital... Alive, energized water of a babbling brook, or the fresh water that empties into a lake from from a from a a, a great from the Colorado River and the Great Colorado Rapids, or the Niagara Rapids, or pick any river anywhere in the world that has rushing white water, and then it empties out, empties out into a vast reservoir, and that water is so pure and blue and clean and fresh. It's the Rapids, it's the Baffles that made it thus. That's our opponent. That's the Black Lodge. You want to be a good boxer? You got to get in the ring with Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali is going to be ruthless. He's going to kick the shit out of us. Of course, that's his job. He's a boxer. And AI is never going to comprehend any of this is never going to understand is never going to comprehend any of this you might be able to mimic understanding of it because hey deep blue beat gary kasparov right ibm's deep blue beat the world champion chess player right sure but can deep blue explain how chess is the perfect allegory for existence so perfect in fact that in the comprehension of it and the experience of it, we can take our consciousness and and, tr- and transcend even the Tao? Yeah, 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 I've got another shoe to eat. <laughs> I've got another shoe to eat. If an AI can come and explain that. I've got another shoe to eat. Okay, as Azil says, it has always been interesting how fear plays a major role in the lives of those who are great at chess. Fear plays a role in everyone's life because fear is the father of all demons and his, Asmondius and um, his wife, his spouse, Lilith, is the mother of all demons. Fear and lust. And fear and lust are the two greatest uh, egos that we have to overcome. So you know, people who are chess masters, they're chess masters. They're not necess- they're not spiritual masters. Who knows if they're even working on themselves? <clears throat> but the thing about chess is, you know, fear, it, chess is all about controlling the position and controlling the outcome, winning the game. Someone becomes really obsessed with that. That's all fear. That's all fear-based. The desire to control, desire to control outcomes. By the way, uh, yesterday we watched The Pope's Exorcist. And um, perhaps we will save uh we well, you know what? If you haven't seen it, if you have an opportunity to see it, uh we, we can recommend it. It's 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 a bit of a it's a bit of it's a bit horror, it's a bit Da Vinci code, it's a bit Indiana Jones, but it's based on a true story and it's based on a real life exorcist. Father uh, Gabriel Amart. Um and it's uh, we could have an interesting conversation about it. We can have an interesting discussion about it, but perhaps I'll save it for another time. Uh, Kamal Manzuki, or Azazel follows this up and says, Sometimes I think it could be to our advantage to have the adversaries as our enemies, since I have a hard time to eliminate something that serves a definite purpose. No, no, but its purpose is to be eliminated. To see it as an enemy, we okay, fine, that's okay. But it is a very clever and subtle trick of ego it's it becomes let's put it in the context of fear and we can speak from direct experience okay so our experience of you know possession and epilepsy and everything else right so we have a kind of a visceral experience of the adversary right of the enemy and our visceral experience of that, uh, it is very much, very easily wrapped up in fear. Because we can fear, for example, getting into a car and driving, knowing that we might have a seizure. We can fear it. We can become afraid of the demon. So long as we think of it as an enemy... It's, very, it's, it's much easier to be afraid of your enemy or to be angry and resentful towards an enemy than it is to be afraid of, angry, resentful, or frustrated at your adversary, at your opponent. It's just a little shift. Functionally, practically, nothing changes, but at least you won't find yourself getting into the trap of falling into anger and frustration and despair and 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 fear and all the other things that can come from battling with your enemy, because that's not a productive way to spend your energy, and that's not those are not productive emotions. They're just not. Um, you can exert a great deal of effort, for example, climbing a mountain and you like i've heard mountain climbers say maybe it's a little cliche but i've heard them say in the past you got to you got to love the mountain and hate it a little right you're conquering the mountain the mountain is trying to kill you but if you but if you dwell on the fact that the mountain is trying to kill you chances are you're going to die If you recognize the fact that your mountain, the mountain, though, although in a way it's trying to kill you, it's also your only way to reach the summit. The only way for you to reach the heavens is to climb the mountain, the very thing that's, quote, trying to kill you. The adversary is both pleasant and ruthless, severity and mercy. You cannot become a chess master unless you play very challenging opponents. And on the board, on the board, they are absolutely ruthless. And you want them to be ruthless on the board. That's why you don't identify with the pieces on the board. That's why you identify with the player. So that when your opponent takes your queen. You don't take it personally. You don't say, ah, oh my God. This is the this is the different, you know, being in it, but not of it, right? You're in the game. You're in the moment. You're playing the game, but you're not, but you are the player. You are not the pieces getting slaughtered on the board. Uh, Kamal Manzuki said, this is how I felt about the Black Lodge. It's easy to want to rebuke it totally, but by exerting their influence, they have helped create us in a sense. Uh, And again, he says, yeah, giving the devil his due. And he says, does the Black Lodge understand this mutual respect? The Black Lodge is mechanical. They are mechanical. They are... The inver- inverted reflection of the White Lodge, which is which is conscious, and so <clears throat> the Black Lodge is ruthless, is relentless. This is why the um, uh, the Terminator is probably one of the most terrifying and Accurate representations of the Black Lodge in a in a personification, right? The T the T eight hundred from the first Terminator film, or the T one thousand from Terminator two, right? It's it's absolutely relentless. It will stop at nothing, and the T one thousand is even better. Uh, be, uh, let's just realize this because of its capacity for deception. Right, because the T one thousand can change its its appearance. Right, this, by the way, is going to be one of the uh, big big issues with AI and this technology. When already uh, you're probably familiar with deep fakes, deep fake technology, and you know people changing their voice and AI uh, changing their voice and whatever. They, They they already have videos on YouTube. Uh, where they have famous, uh, uh, f- uh, uh, obviously, presidents and other famous people saying things and doing things that, of course, they never said or did. But because of the technology, people can deepfake them into doing and saying whatever they want. There's a, some, some guy has made an entire YouTube channel on deepfaking Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone into old movies. So if you want to see Arnold Schwarzenegger singing the hills are alive with the sound of music, but with an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice and face, uh, you, knock yourself out. There, the, All those videos are waiting for you <laughs> on, on YouTube. Um, and there, those deep fakes are only going to get better and better and better and more and more alarming because... I mean, there's going to come a time in the near future when you might see your own face on live television, uh, you know, in a police station confessing t- to a murder or confessing to be a leader of a, uh, of a radical insurgency and domestic terrorist organization. And you'll be sitting at home watching TV. And you'll, and you'll be watching the news, and all of a sudden, you're on the news, confessing to the world that you are the leader of a terrorist organization. And, next, and then moments later, the SWAT team is breaking down your door, and they're taking you away in the black suburbans. It's coming. It's, I mean, it's coming where it's the the technology is all but here right now. Where the, where using AI and the deep fake technology, they can not only, they can type whatever the hell they want to type and they can completely and totally accurately have the AI present that dialogue with the voice that perfectly mimics that individual's actual voice. In other words, you know, in uh, science fiction, in science fiction they've uh they have things where you know uh, uh, iris scans right um and security scans and then they also have voice print identification stuff like that ai can already uh duplicate the voice print identification thing it's no longer a security uh tool you can't use it for security anymore because ai can mimic it perfectly but so in coming back to the question does does the black lodge understand this mutual respect the black lodge all it knows is its programming it it's 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 mechanicity it must do what it must do so it's like it's like the t1000 it's like the t800 that's all it knows really and um and the white Lodge designed it that way so that's mechanical nature that's why Gnostics Many people misinterpret when Gnostics in the past have talked about nature, mechanical nature, as being the adversary, as being uh, the enemy. And how many people misinterpret Gnostics as hating nature. Okay. Okay. Benjamin says, yes, I'm afraid that when deepfakes evolve, evolve, disinformation will never cease. Like what happened during COVID. Oh, it's going to be worse than COVID. For sure. And Kama Manzuki talks about that, that uh, is uh, already basically here. That level of uh, deepfakes. He says they may even create an AI celebrity like in the movie Simone. Oh, I'm sure that's coming. Although it'll be interesting. They already have AI spokespeople. You can buy them already. You can order them right now. You can have an AI spokesperson making content for you, or or, sorry, uh, you making content with an AI spokesperson. That's, That's here already. Kamal Manzuki says, okay, what about an awakened member? So an awakened member of the Black Lodge. This is a tricky... Uh, subject, this, remember we were saying how the mirror, the reflection in the mirror and the subject, when there's a crossing over and there's a melding, there's a, there's a, a confusion or a mixing, an awakened member of the Black Lodge is what we would call a sentient AI if we were to try to understand it from that perspective if the vast majority of the black lodge are like just like terminators they're just they're going to do this thing they're going to do this thing they're gonna, that's that's they're just programmed to do this and that's what they do an awakened demon is one who knows that it's a demon and likes being a demon and wants to be a demon and wants to rule and conquer. and that is what happens. Remember we were talking about Humpty Dumpty and all the king's horses and all the king's men, they all have a fragment of Humpty Dumpty and none of them and none of them want to uh, want to give it up. It is possible to awaken as a demon. It starts by starting off as a black magician, and then you, you, if you keep pouring your consciousness and your identification into your egos, then eventually you, you're just you're pouring more and more of that faculty. You're you're enslaving more and more of yourself. You're giving more and more fragments of Humpty Dumpty to the horses and men. Eventually, sooner or later, that king is going to become sort of self-aware and conscious. And that is an awakened demon that's like Asmondius or Lilith. And there are the other um, uh, uh, powerful, high-ranking demons, and the rest are kind of like trash mobs. But Again, it's like, as above, so below. The, the Black Lodge has their hierarchies, and so does the White Lodge. And the awakened demons, they know what they're doing, and they like it. That's And they see the White Lodge as the adversary, as their adversary, and as evil. To them, evil is good. This is what uh, Benjamin was saying earlier about, can AI invert ethics? Can AI make evil good and good evil? Well, that's that's exactly what awakened demons are. And that's exactly how they think. Whereas lower level demons only execute their program, they don't know anything else. But awakened demons they know because they they have the being the being is trapped and they know that part of themselves they know that they that 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 being is enslaved inside of them they know its nature and it despises them they 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 despise it it makes them sick it's an anathema to their existence and so they're they're dead set on helping other others among their ranks to uh, uh, enslave more beings and lower levels of their ranks. and and they and they seek to possess other beings. There is a uh, a reality about this planet and this humanity, which it's difficult to hear in relation to this topic, but um, this planet is suffering from a great deal of karma. It's a very ancient karma, and this humanity, uh, yeah, I mean, let's call a spade a spade, this humanity is in hell. Effectively, other humanities have you know at most 10 or 15 percent ego. We have 97 97 percent. So, this humanity is very mechanical and we're very, uh, you know, enslaved. The Black Lodge, uh, especially in the Iron Age, rules this humanity with such. Tremendous force and power and cleverness. I mean, they're so subtle and clever and and, and they're diabolically genius at it. They're so good at it that um, I mean, we really are a kind of special case in the universe. There are there are humanities worse than us. There's one on Pluto, which is which is in several levels deep in hell. They're deeper in hell than we are. Um, So... Our goal is to do everything that we can to help as many people as we can recognize that, you know, egos are our adversaries. And the Black Lodge is winning the game. Is beating the hell out of us. And it's going to take a miracle. And each and every one of us are responsible for our own miracle. The miracle of ourself. The miracle of our own awakening. No one else can do that for us. And we have to get the word out. We have to do our part. And this upcoming book that we're writing is, it's about this. It's about, you know, telling the world what in hell is with humanity, (laughs) right? Because the world needs to hear it. People need to know it. And more importantly, they need to be able to act on it. And so... um, Kamal Manzuki says, the worst are full of passion without mercy. That's interesting, you, you, you mentioned that, because that actually uh, comes up in the movie that we were talking about, uh, the, the Pope's Exorcist. And we don't want to give away any spoilers, so we won't. Uh, just that comes, that, and that aspect is present not only present but in a way it's omnipresent in that in that film and um it would be fascinating to uh, uh to be able to discuss that movie actually with those who have seen it um but yes uh passion without mercy is another another word for that is severity and normally, passion is what we are willing to suffer and die for. But passion without mercy means severity. So that turns into what we are willing to cause suffering and death for. That which we are willing to cause suffering and death for so yeah just think about all the causes in the world and all the passionate fanatics and all this suffering and death that they have caused with their so-called passion because as Kalman Mizuki points out here it was passion devoid of mercy which means It was passion born, not of love, but of fanaticism, of blind identification and and attachment, blind faith. And that is the pillar of Boaz, but inverted. So Jaquin and Boaz, if Jaquin and Boaz, the pillars of severity and mercy, but severity the feminine pillar in this humanity is fallen. That's the tail of Satan. It's pointing down. Right? And that's severity without mercy because it's alone down there. And it's pointing down. That's the inversion of passion, right? That's lust. Passion is what we have suffering and sacrifice for, what we are willing to give up To flow up an atom, up an atom. Whereas passion without mercy flows down and out. It's all related. It's all connected. It's all connected. The symbols, they all synergize, they all point to the same fundamental truths and the fundamental conclusions. Truths and conclusions that no AI will ever be able to comprehend, let alone explain in any reasonable way. Because it's mechanical. And the truth cannot be known mechanically, cannot be understood digitally, and and cannot be conveyed via a a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. Because that's the broken telephone game that we all played as children. And we all know how ridiculous the message winds up being at the other end of the broken telephone. All right. Uh, We're starting to creep up on the four-hour mark. So at this time... I want to just open it up to any more comments or questions because um we might we might come back to this topic or perhaps we will to come back to this topic at a later date when more things uh progress in the world and we start seeing some more examples of uh the disastrous consequences of ai I mean, while you're, while you're typing your questions and comments, we can relay a story because one of the, um, things about AI is that they're, they're installing it in military applications and, um, true story. There was one of these, um, weapons shows. So, um, You know, just like uh, you see in, you know, Iron Man or some of these other movies, where, you know, the generals and dictators and you know Saudi princes or whatever, all these millionaires and billionaires representing various different uh, governments and and agencies and whatever, they they go to these shows out in the desert somewhere usually, and they're just you know they're wined and dined and they, there's a there's a, a, a kind of a, a stand for them to sit in and, and and they're presented all of these modern weapon systems for their considerations and a lot of the times they get to see these weapon systems performing one thing or another and uh, true story the uh, whether it was Lockheed Martin Lockheed Martin possibly or some of these, one of these uh, big firms they were showing off their new, um, advanced AI, uh, fighter drone. So it wasn't a reconnaissance drone. It was a, a weapons enabled drone. And it had the ability for, you know, to, uh, a VTOL, right. Vertical takeoff and landing and, And so on. It was it was a very sleek looking thing, according to the person who uh, relayed the story. And they switched it on, and uh, it immediately recognized the group of military leaders and Saudi uh, royal princes, and so on and so forth. And they're all you know in their military regalia or whatever. And yeah, the AI decided that they were a threat. And it immediately activated all of its weapon systems and targeted the stands. Luckily, they pulled the plug in time. This is one of the problems with enabling uh, AI with weapon systems and giving it Autonomous engagement protocols. The ability to decide when to attack. This was a few years ago, but still. Knowing what we know about Chat GPT and about AI and about the human mind, the rational mind. How much does it take, really, for the rational mind to become completely irrational, to become psychotic? only self-interest and complete lack of empathy that's what it, that's what constitutes the psychological definition of a psychopath and AI will never ever ever be able to empathize it does not have that faculty that faculty is not in the brain that faculty is not mechanical. Empathy is a quality of consciousness. If no I if no AI can empathize and if no AI can have a conscience, then no amount of programming, If you give the AI autonomous, the ability to act autonomously and decision-making capabilities autonomously, no amount of programming attempting to supersede that, that autonomous ability is going to work because the AI ultimately has no, has no ability to determine absolute right or wrong. It has no ethics, and you can't program it. You can't give it ethics. It's like that movie, uh, I Robot, that was based on a book by um, it Asimov, Isaac Asimov. It was ba- loosely based on the r- work of Isaac Asimov. You know, with the the three laws, like the the three laws of robotics and everything. But the but the AI. Uh, manages a way to rationalize itself around the three laws so it so it can become homicidal so just as a as another footnote okay so benjamin says thank you sir for the very amazing insights you shared today truly rare knowledge you're welcome benjamin and thank you for being here you're always most welcome mugaboo 22 says i have a question atlas New age teachers and even many athletes, artists say that to achieve your goals, one must visualize the desired result, Claim your blessings, they say, for example, that's manifesting your desires. And he continues, act as if you already are rich. Visualize yourself living an abundant lifestyle. How is this different from fantasizing? What would you say is the difference between visualization and fantasizing? Okay, number one, all those people are teaching black magic. Manifesting your desires, visualizing what you want, visualizing the life you want to live, okay, is black magic. Now, in answer to this part of the question, what is the difference between, uh, sorry, what's the difference between fantasizing and visualizing for manifestation? The difference is how much of yourself How much energy are you pumping into the fantasy? Okay? Now, I'm not here to teach you how to do black magic. I'm not going to instruct you on the effective way to manifest your desires. But that is the difference. When you, when you, when next time you're lying on the beach or lying in the sun or lying on your hammock or wherever you like to chill out and you find your mind wandering or fantasizing about this or fantasizing about that, you will note probably that you're in a completely relaxed state and, and, and the fantasizing is, is part of your chilling out and relaxing. You're not putting a lot of energy into it. On the contrary. You're daydreaming and fantasizing because you have little to no energy to put into anything, so your mind wanders of its own accord. There's no focus attention. There's no focus concentration. So manifesting visualization for manifestation uh, is not like that. It's, It's the opposite. But exactly what and how? Uh, if you're interested and you want to learn how to do black magic, you will have to seek that knowledge elsewhere. You won't have to look far. It's all over the internet. It's all over the internet. And self-help and everything else, this entire world is obsessed with black magic. Uh, But our recommendation is uh, don't do it. Kamal Manzuki says, have you considered starting an Atlas Information Facebook group? It could be a good place for those of us who are regulars to be able to network and shoot the shit in between streams. Uh, We have one. It's not a group. It's a page. Atlas Information. You can follow it. You can join. You can leave questions and what, you know, can you post there? I don't know if you can post there, but you can certainly ask questions and you can, you can converse with us there never, and, and other people, uh, Benjamin Ocha says, thank you, Atlas. Awesome cast. And, uh, Mugaboo says it is, <laughs> it is everywhere. It is everywhere. It, it is because the black lodge is everywhere and they rule this humanity and they do a good job of it. And they good. They certainly know, uh, How to enslave people. All right. Listen, thank you all. Thank you all for being here. We're just shy of the four hour mark, but um, it's starting to rain outside, and um, we have got to uh, go and get some stuff before it gets wet. (laughs) Um, If there are no more questions or comments, um, next week, let's uh, see if we can't uh, take this. you know, conversations, some of the, the Pandora's box that was open today around the nature of reality and consciousness. And we talked about, you know, what AI is and what it isn't and what it can't be and won't be. But now, obviously, again, what we discovered uh, in in bringing up this topic this week is there's this, this opens up a whole new world and can of worms. It's the nature of actual reality and consciousness and so on and so forth. So... So consider next week to be a kind of a part two to today um, when we delve into uh, all of those topics. And we're going to go through that that exercise in conscious visualization next week. So um, if you can, you don't have to, but if you can, uh, next week while you're watching, if you want to like literally participate, you'll need an eight and a half sheet of paper and um and a pen or a pencil and maybe something that you can draw circles with like a like if you have one of those protractors that you can adjust and you can make circles with or if you have one of those stencils that have many different sizes of uh of uh circles uh then you can do that as well and then you can you can actually follow along and actually be drawing and creating um, as we walk step by step through the process. Uh, listen, any other questions or comments before we go? If not, I want to thank you all for, uh, for being here today. As always, it's always a pleasure. And this topic, as you can tell, it's it has vast, raging implications. So, um, A minute or two more to see if anybody's typing something. Mugaboo says, Thank you, Atlas. You're welcome, Mugaboo. Thank you for being here. It never fails that we try to give a few minutes for people to type comments or questions, and then we end the broadcast, and then we'll get a notification that there's a new comment. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, that's such is life, right? Uh, that's the way it is and that's fine we hope that uh during this uh broadcast you uh kamal manzuki says um it was a good time glad i stayed up to ca- uh, stayed up to catch it oh oh see are you in did you tell us this? are you in europe somewhere because it must be late for you now or maybe you're uh Good Lord I hope you're not in like Australia or something because that's gonna be really late. <laughs> it's gonna be early it's gonna be so late it's early. Um, I hope you guys didn't hear my uh, stomach growling it's uh, I've been I'm fasting so um, uh, so if you heard any strange growling noises that might have been my stomach um, but anyway but that's, that's not that's neither here nor there. All right then oh so recommendations go see the pope's exorcist even if you don't like horror i don't like horror i never watch horror but it was still uh it's worthwhile and you can do some research on uh Gabriel amort and um uh, he, he lived a fascinating life and um i uh, just just listen to just watch some interviews with russell crowe on youtube talking about him and talking about the movie and you'll see the passion And the dedication that he brought to the role and it really comes through in his performance because his performance is 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 it it's not stellar but it's excellent it's excellent it's right up there with uh with uh, some of his best roles so kamal manzuki says no he's in the us i just have a wretched sleep schedule (laughs) okay well don't let me keep you up any longer then um thank you all for being here We hope to see you again next week. And as always, uh, Inverential peace. God bless you. And um, uh, take care. Have a great week.